episode number 54, Scott Miller. Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time I have an interview with theatre design consultant and a very old and dear friend, Scott Miller. Scott's interview is the first one resulting from my trip to Vancouver in December of 2018. And we touch on his career as a technical director in Toronto, Halifax, and Vancouver, and the transition to a partner at DWD Theatre Design and Consulting, a firm that specializes in the building and design of live performance spaces. This is a show about theater design here on the title block, but we have yet to talk about the design of your performance space. And Scott and I talk about all aspects of building and renovating a theater, from planning and budgeting to the integration of the architect with the acousticians, HVAC, and of course, the audience. Scott did want me to mention that he is also on the board of directors of Rumble Theater in Vancouver, something he forgot to mention on the show. Uh, And to find a link to that uh, theater and all the other names and theaters we talk about, please go to the show notes and follow along as we trace Scott's career in Canadian theater. Also there, you will find a link to our Patreon page where some of you have already subscribed, but you can support the show with as little as $1 an episode. Please go do it. Now, here's my conversation with Scott Miller. Scott Miller is a theater design consultant based in Vancouver, but he and I go back many years uh, to our early days at Ryerson Theater School in the early 90s. He's worked across the country as a production manager and technical director and has done some lighting design as well. And he joins me today from his office here in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, at uh, remind me of the name DWD DWD Theater Design and Consulting. Perfect, Scott Miller. Welcome to the Title Block. Oh, thank you. I almost got through the whole thing without <laughs> having to ask you questions. Uh, so, thank you so much for this opportunity to have a chat. We've, we've I've known you since the beginning of my career, which is remarkable uh, to me, anyways. Um, how did you find your way to theater? You were originally born in Calgary, but you lived in Vancouver uh, shortly after you were born in Calgary. So, tell me about how you found your way to theater and why you thought it was a good idea well it is a bit of a you know cocktail party story that i haven't told in a while because i got into theater in high school essentially for being a snotty high school kid like many of us are but uh i was in a choir class for a show where the choir was going to support the show so everyone in the school was a performer and i was getting up to some normal shenanigans that i would have because this would have been grade seven or eight and uh, got asked by the choir teacher if we wanted to be in the class. And we actually answered truthfully and just said no. So we got sent to the principal. And our punishment was to work production. And that's how I got into theater. <laughs> that's hilarious. I know that we've all felt that way professionally from time to time. That's awesome. Um, and so did you, you obviously enjoyed it. Was it something that you found... Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. And so consequently ended up becoming, you know, in high school, like a lot of people started out running uh, audio for the music department in, in my junior high school, which went up to grade nine. 
And then when I went into senior high school, I didn't get along. I wasn't as bad, but I didn't get along with the music department there, but did get along with the drama teacher. So I started doing shows, and we did some pretty significant shows in, uh, back at Stevenson High School, including taking them out of the high school to Gateway Theater, which had just been built. That's awesome. And did you uh, was what kind of support did you have when you went to the Gateway? Were they was the crew there sort of doing a lot of the work, or did you guys do the design work, or how did that work? The design all came essentially from the drama teacher. We constructed it in class, and then shipped it out like a normal roadshow. Um, we did get. I even got. I believe we got to run flies a bit there. All center supervised. There was a full time staff. I think they were union right from the beginning, not 100% sure, but they were definitely professional um, full-time technicians. Uh, yeah, and we it was also the ones that were outside of the school were in conjunction with a community theater group called Caught in the Act, which oh. is how I got into doing community theater first in Vancouver. Nice. I had not heard of them. Are they still around? Uh, I think they formally existed at least four or five years ago, but they haven't done a production in decades. Right. Yeah. And they were based, they were a community group based out of... Based out of Richmond, yeah. Out of Richmond. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'll try to uh, dig up some information. If four years ago they did a production, they should have some sort of online presence. Yeah. Uh, so it should be pretty easy to find that. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, awesome. And then um, tell me about your, your, your trip to, you went to post-secondary. Uh, we met at Ryerson. How did you decide to go to Toronto and how did you get, like, what, what brought you out of Vancouver? Well, uh, I mean, this one is, shows a bit of some uh, uh, disagreements you might have with union and non-union when you're first starting out. And I had started to pull some gigs at the Arts Club Theatre uh, in Vancouver, was digging, doing production work, and wanted to learn more about it. But I have to admit, I was doing gigs and I was looking at the 50-year-old guys on the same stage as me that had been doing the same thing for so long, and... I didn't see me getting there by just working gigs. Like, uh, it seemed like a really long road. So I packed my bags, applied to York University, and headed towards Toronto where all the theater was happening. You know, and it was like I was telling you the funny stories. So I found out in Winnipeg that I didn't get into York, uh, but continued on and then applied for Ryerson once I landed and got in the year after, roughly. That's awesome. Uh, I think, well, I'm certainly happy you got into Ryerson instead of York. This is like 1990, you applied to 91, 91, I think. Okay. Because we were in the same class. Yeah. So we started in 90, I think we started in 92. Yeah. Uh, and so you were applying over the 91 year. Um, that's interesting. I thought that like, uh, shortly thereafter we ended up in Blythe together, which we'll talk about, but, um, Tim O'Gorman and Kelly Fox had come out from Vancouver and they Mm -hmm. had, um, they had moved out at the beginning of the 90s because there were a few companies working in Vancouver but there, and there was a lot of film work certainly at the time but theater was not something as robust I guess as has had been happening in Toronto I find it surprising that um, I still find it surprising that there wasn't enough work or interesting work or opportunities out here for a sort of young artist to find in the early 90s I guess uh, Toronto was a draw yeah, and it probably started changing shortly after that because there's very robust community now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, same as what you said for Tim. It's like, yeah, there was, I think Touchstone was still around then. Tamman House, which is gone, was there. Um, Rumble, which I am a part of now, but I didn't even know about that. It formally existed, but didn't do very much. Um, 
Yeah, and we had the two big competing regionals, the Arts Club and the Playhouse. And those are the ones where I thought, I don't know. It looks like you have to be in the business for 30 years before you have a full-time job this path. That's that's the impression I had, so that's why I decided to move. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and then you went to Ryerson. Um, we can. Uh, I haven't talked a lot about my time at Ryerson with the, my cohort, but why don't you describe some of the people that we went to school with so we understand <laughs> who came out? Because at Ryerson, it was very... <laughs> We sort of, it was like a marathon. Like at the end of the thing, we start with 50 people in first year. And then by third year, like 12 people graduate kind of thing. So who? who was yeah, we lost, didn't we lose? We lost half of the cohort by Christmas, by the f- end of the first term. That's true, right? Because I think the, you're right. I think it was like 48 people started and 12 or 18 people finished and nine or 12 graduated. It was that thing too. Yeah. So, well, obviously, I mean. It's for the interview, but you know, like you and uh, Nathaniel Kennedy are like still some of my best buddies, even though we live opposite sides of the country and we're in the same class. And that's a good example where I didn't actually graduate at Ryerson. I'm not sure if Nathaniel did, to be honest, and but you did. I did after seven years. <laughs> I know I did to start last night. I had to go back and get special dispensation from yeah. Ira Levine, who was the Dean of Arts, thankfully, who knew me. And I got a special letter to go back and get my last credit while I was at Shaw. But uh, that was, it was not really... Um, I mean, no one has ever asked me if I graduated from Ryerson forever to get yeah. a job. They said, oh, you went to Ryerson. You got some, you had your training. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's, you know, you, your cohort that you went to school with. And, they, and we worked together a number of times after that. So, yeah, it was never a big deal. So, There's been the odd uh, city job, you know, like a theater job, but we're formally working for cities or, or universities where I've been asked. But it's never, it did never hold me back from my theater career. Um, yeah, the, I'm sure there's other classes like this, but yeah, our class now that you made me think about it, like we had Chris Spruill and Mike and Lee Kerr, and there's quite a collection of fellas and there was ladies there too. Unfortunately, I don't remember their names, but, uh, that all worked together really well, put on some great shows. Yeah. It was certainly a special time. Um, now your first gig, um, you were the head electrician at the Blythe Festival. In 93, this is while you were still at Ryerson. That would have been my first, like, yeah, full-on professional gig. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, no, I'm trying to remember the order. I think, because I was at the Red Barn, too, which isn't on my resume, because it just dropped off. Oh, interesting. And that might have been the summer before, because I did that on a Futures Grant way back when. Oh, that's right. We've talked about the Futures Grant here. I don't think, it doesn't exist anymore at Ontario Arts Council, I don't think. No, and it was an Ontario thing, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's been, we've talked about that several times on the show and how it kind of gave these opportunities to people. Um, uh, the Red Barn Theater was in, uh, Jackson's Point, right? Yep. And run by Peter Zosky had some connection Peter to Peter Zosky had a connection to it. And a year, a couple of years after I left, he donated a bunch of money to get them new seats or probably repurposed from another theater because they were falling. I mean, I tell people it was a real barn and the seats were falling apart. One of my gigs as the only technician was to put the stuffing that the raccoons had pulled out back in in the morning. Nice. That's awesome. Well, how big was the theater? I had, um, it, was, it eventually burned down, right? There wasn't a fire or something? There was or? a fire. I haven't looked into it for a while. There was a fire. I don't think it ever totally burnt down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was probably 300 seats, mm-hmm. flat floor, a little bit of rake at the back. Uh, race stage, but yeah, and it was Futures Grant, but it was also kind of my first freelance gig because you didn't get paid a whole lot out of Futures. And I swung a deal with the Red Barn where 
they hired me as the, I forget the title, but essentially there's the TDME and the uh, wardrobe person. They So I said, you can hire me full-time to help build the sets and hang lights and do all the daytime stuff. And then why don't you pay me as a freelancer to run the shows? And we'll try to split it up in contracts so it won't get anybody into trouble. I get paid a little more, so I'm willing to go. And I it was, you know, working 80 hours a week for the whole summer. So um, That sounds like a great place to learn as well. Like Summer Theatre Ontario is a pretty, you have to pull the stocks out, yeah. the stops out to sort of make things happen. So it's a good training center too. And a good, oh, and I, I feel bad. That I can't remember the name of the TD. We had a really good relationship too. And he did all the designs. And since it was just me, I, you know, made props in the day. So did repair work on costumes. I didn't make them. And then ran the shows at night. Sometimes, one of the times he would run the show. And if we needed a stage hand, I'd be the only stage hand on deck. And, and just the fun of working in a barn has all, all kinds of stories. <laughs> Uh, that's terrific. So, and it's funny how the one thing that's not on your resume is the thing we talk about. But um, and then you headed to Blythe the next year in '93 yep. uh, to be the head electrician. Um, how was that experience? I mean, you already had one summer theater, and frankly, Blythe is better resourced than the Red Barn was. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it was I was the head of a department and only really had to work in my department. Right. We were everyone was a good team worker out there, but even on rep, you know, you might help a bit. But I, as opposed to being a jack of all trades. Um, and it was a longer season and it was, like you said, just a bit more professional. And this was the big Peter Smith season that, uh, just before it switched. That sounds right. Right. Yeah. To Janet Amos. Um, and they were, uh, they were up in, I mean, uh, we've, we've hinted about this on the show. They were up to their necks in debt mm-hmm. that year. Um, unfortunately they had made some choices that either were too expensive or they didn't give enough support with the choices they made, and so they were right on the edge. The next year kind of was make or break um, for them. But um, how was your experience? I mean, you went on to Blythe again. Uh, two years later, you became the technical director um, after I... Well, I, I have an interesting... Yeah, if you yeah. look at my resume, yeah. in Blythe, I was head electrician, skipped a year, technical director, skipped a year, and then production manager. Actually, it was quite a few years later. I think I went back as production manager. But here's the story, and I think I can say this out really being too negative about an individual. Sure. But you were the head electrician after me. Yes, I was. And the reason, well, actually, I don't know, know the reasons, but essentially um, I got a call the next year from the people in charge at the time to ask if I wanted to be head of audio. The year after, I was head electrician. Right. And this might be a bit of my attitude from high school coming back, but I, I said, David Vanderlip was the head of sound last year next to me as head electrician. Perhaps you should ask him if he wants to go back. And they did. And they hired David for sound. And I think they'd already hired you for lighting. So, you know, you always make second guesses of whether you had a, a tighter connection with someone on the new team or they really didn't like my work. as I don't think it's like didn't like my work as head electrician or they wouldn't offer me another job. No, I think, so from my understanding, I so I got the job because of Leslie Wilkinson. Mm. And Leslie, um, she had worked there before, uh, but she had a good relationship with Janet Amos. Uh, yeah. And my understanding was that they, it, this isn't entirely true, because obviously David came back, but there's there, there was an interim person before David, mm. whose name we could, uh, Nathaniel Kennedy and I were trying to remember who it was. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't work out. It's probably better we don't know what his name is because yeah. I wouldn't probably mention it on the show anyways. But he had had some – he came from someplace else and was not really 
um, was not really. He didn't have the headspace at the time to run rep theater in a summer theater. He came from a house gig someplace um, where he was quite a skilled sound person. Um, but uh, he, you know, it was a bit of a step down for him, and I don't know if he was fully committed to doing it. Mm-hmm. So we brought in David after that. But I, my understanding was that they tried to, like the entire crew, except for Nathaniel, um, and then later David was turned around because of this desire to change directions from the previous artistic director and the team who had kind of run. Uh, I'm not going to blame it on the team. No. I have certain theories that I won't posit on the air, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, how they got to that position. But um, my understanding was they were trying to wipe the slate clean and start again. Um, and because Leslie had a good relationship with Janet Amos and she was my mentor at Ryerson, then she asked me to do it. Um, so not the greatest way to yep. transition. No, but you're right. It happens team. that people try to, and that'll come up again when we talk about the Atlantic Theater Festival. We get to that. Um, that happens. And sometimes there's reasons for it, but usually somebody gets caught up that shouldn't have to. Yeah. Because there was that first year was, was there was Brian Cumberland and was Ray was still there? Um, Ray was there. Was, Ray was not there. He was there your year. Yeah. And they he got replaced with Susan Moffat, who was That's the GM. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Crystal had been there. They were still in town. Uh, Crystal Silverta, uh, who was the stage manager, she, um, I don't know if she came back the next year. I think Martine mm-hmm. came back the next year because they moved out of town. But yeah. Ray had stopped being the GM. He had they were they were just That's living right. there. Uh, and then I forget who our head carpenter was because Cumberland had left. Tim Ogorko, as we called him, Tim came in and <laughs> and, and a weird sort of um, <clears throat> not weird weird for Bly Festival. He had he had been a contractor. You know who might have been? You're talking who was a head carpenter when we were there. When 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 Nathaniel and when I the, were there, and then the next second year, year. After you, yeah, because Jason McLean works into this mix too. Right. I don't, I don't remember who it was. Anyways, it was a it was a, a th- I mean the festival almost closed. There's a great article in CTR, uh, Canadian Theatre Review from Janet Amos about, and we didn't hit, realize this at the time how dire things were. Mm-hmm. Like if it wasn't for her, and I think I've told the story, so I won't go on too long. But if it wasn't for Janet Amos for that year, for their her choices on the shows and the scale that they chose, which was very small, um, the theater would have been bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually came out in the black at the end of the year uh, and dug themselves out of a giant debt yep. pit. Um, so, yeah, it was a remarkable year. Um, but then you ended up at Corthus Summer Theater. Yep. That you're instead in Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, which has, again, a long history as well. How was that experience? Who were you, who were you there with? I was there with oh, Christine oh, Kazan. What's her first name? I can't remember. Catherine Kazan? I no. think so, yeah. Catherine Kazan, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's been a while. But yeah, that that was cool because then I went from being an electrician to being stage carp. Mm-hmm. I made them call me that. It was like, again, this was a... The, construction job but they didn't have anyone else on staff with much training on rigging or how to put stuff in so i said please call me the stage carp because i want that that install on stage is the that's what you call them and i want that on my resume and there that show that year i didn't run shows that was totally day shift um but it's the closest to the classic uh summer stock that i ever got to do we did a show every two weeks 
but the year before, previous the previous two years ago, they were in the classic show a week model, and they did like eight or nine shows in the summer. So the design consisted of mostly box sets, and you would just shuffle flats around and put doors in and paint it the right color for the show. <laughs> like a true summer stock. Yeah. Yeah, which is a, something that I hadn't experienced, because Blythe is in rep, and I um, hadn't really worked other places for summer stocks. That's incredible. Like, was it repainted every week, or...? We would build a new set every week. So, like, when I got there, by then it was was every two weeks, so I had a bit more time. But we had, like, where the word stock comes from. Yeah. There was a set on stage, and we had we had enough flats and door flats and window flats in the shop to probably build two or three other sets if we had used everything at once. Right. So, while one show was up, we'd build another one in the shop, dismantle it, roll it up the street, put it, put it in, take the other one out. Right. I don't think that's a model that happens anymore in Ontario. Uh, I don't think like, so. People program four or five show seasons, and well, what is Street and Entertainment, the, the big multi place? Yeah, but I'd hardly call them summer stock. They're like a, they're a festival theater. Yeah, well, uh, uh, yeah. I, I've lost track exactly, but I thought they also, rather than take the set down, but they would still have a show in for two weeks, and then set would move to the next theater in the chain. That's true. So yes. they weren't building as much like that turnaround in each theater was kind of similar yeah that's a very good point like they they have five or six shows or seven shows in their season and they rotate between venues yeah um but they're building whole like they're the, the sets are constructed whole cloth yeah like it's it's a specific design that it has a, it's, it's a touring design basically right that they have to design rather than pulling whatever they've got in stock yeah. and then putting it together and going and you're and you're doing a show a week how long was the season a show every two weeks it was when i was there yeah uh, the season was three or four months we did five shows okay the other neat thing we did there that ties into summer stock one show a year um, would do one night in peterborough and we'd leave the set there but we'd go back to our stock and we'd say again okay for the play we need so many entrances and so many windows and a table and we'd take that and put it in this outdoor stage in peterborough with no walls maybe maybe no curtains even but just have the entrances identified to an outdoor crowd of about 1,200 people right. one night. Wow. That's crazy. There's also a lot more touring that used to happen. Like Blythe did some tours, and, and a number of other companies actually toured around Ontario quite often. Mm-hmm. That's, again, that's something that happens now with, with theater at all. So it's, a, it's an important story. Um, great. And then you, you made back to Blythe, and you were there as a TD for uh, another season. Um, and then you came back uh, to Blythe in 2002 as the production manager. Yeah. But in the interim, you ended up on the East Coast, um, and you're, uh, you went to Wolfville to the Atlantic Theater Festival. Tell me how you got hired there and, and your responsibilities and, and the experience, because you were now, at this point, you were done at Ryerson. 94, yep. I think, was our graduating year, right? Yeah. So um, this is your, was this your first big TD, TD job? This you were doing freelancing and stuff as well, right? Yeah, along with like our cohort, and you were doing lighting design around town and like Skinny Saints, which you noticed. And, um, I was doing the freelancing in Toronto grind for a year and a half. And uh, I forget where I saw the posting, but, you know, it was just a job posting farther afield, and it was a full-time technical director job. So it was, I mean, Blythe was uh, certainly a full-time proper TD job too, and you really needed to know what you're doing. But Atlantic Theatre Festivals looked like it was trying to be continuing. They were still only summer at the time. Uh, and then they go, so you were March to October. So it was still, it was extended season, but it was still basically a summer stock or a summer it was rep. theater festival. It was rep as well. That's part of what I think 
was why you know I was attracted to the job and the I was attractive to them. Um, and then we were talking about the wiping the slate clean kind of issue. The first year they didn't make a whole lot of money, and they worked people really really hard. So you know without putting uh, ID, really saying what everyone's individual choice was of. The second year of their existence, there I think were only two employees that were the same. Yeah. So the entire production department, design department was all brand new. Yeah, they had a bit of a rep for working people to the bone. Yeah. Uh, at that time, are they still around? I haven't uh, checked. No, they lasted a solid four or five years. Stumbled a bit. Tried to come back with a new AD from uh, Nova Scotia. Uh, Nigel Bennett, maybe. I'll apologize if I get the who was at which time, but he was an artistic director for a minute. And and uh, tried to come back to do only two shows in non rep, and then just I think they've formally folded quite a while ago. There's another community-based group in Wolfville, which is a tiny little town, trying to do shows in the cinema now instead of the theater that was built. That's a familiar story as well. Um, Brockville and other places like that have the same kind of histories um but you, then you ended up and landed for quite a number of years at neptune yeah yeah how was your experience at neptune who was there when you were first started linda moore was the ad and uh bruce Klinger was the gm and they had just been i landed there in the middle of their big renovation season so we were not in the theater was still under renovation it had been it was a two-year renovation and doing shows at the cohen oh, right. and that kind of lasted for five years there was a really good team there. There's a, I mean, it's, it was a professional level uh, regional theater with a non-unionized staff, although some a lot of them were union members. Um, for the most part, we got along and did work together as a team. But it was a big regional theater. I'm not going to say, you know, as we're doing this in an interview, there were certainly elbows being rubbed and egos being bruised here and there by me and other people, I'm sure, too. Um Great. And then how was uh, working, like, besides this renovation, like, the, what kind of, what was the nature of the renovation? Did they, like, redo the whole thing? They or gutted the theater, rebuilt, so the stage essentially stayed the same, and the balcony stayed the same, but all new lobbies, uh, new basement spaces, and they acquired in the uh, lot behind, so they added uh, wardrobe production space, dressing room space, and another studio theater. So it was a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. And this is in 1996. Yeah. Um, that's great. What a great opportunity. And did you have anything to do with the renovation or that was all taken care of by the current staff? That one was all taken care of by the current staff and the, the theater consultant of that theater. Although it was my first time, it's sort of the later informed my job now, of from the perspective of, oh, I wonder why that architect team did this stuff. And of course, my attitude at the time was, man, they were so dumb. Right. <laughs> I know we also. I have that. a different perspective now. Yes, of course. I know we. I, I, certainly, I've had the same conversations about why did they put that over there? It doesn't make any sense. But like Buddies is a great example. Mm-hmm. We talked about the renovation of Buddy with Steve Lucas, uh, and all the choices. Like it's in, it's great to hear the information behind all the choices because you think, like, why would they? For example, Buddies has a uh, a floating bridge across the catwalk mm-hmm. that can go up and down. It hasn't moved since it was installed. It was moved once in the first season they tried to move it, but it became such a giant pain in the behind that they left it in place and hasn't moved since. But, you know, it's good to sort of think about the the choices that and the, and the committee that it takes to sort of make those choices behind 
uh, the renovation. Um, so I appreciate, I appreciate <laughs> your 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 position. Uh, and you were there till two thousand and one, um, and it's a full year season. You were there year round. Lived out there obviously yep. for so six years or five years. Um, what was theater like on the East Coast in the late '90s? Like, what, what was the community very large? Like, were there other producing companies out there? There was two or three producing companies. There was, uh, well, uh, Mermaid the Puppet Theater were nearby. There was Eastern Front, who were in Dartmouth, which is you know part of Halifax, but you know it was like the suburb across the water. Um, that did a few shows a year. They had a couple of summer stock um, places, and unfortunately, I'm forgetting the names. Sorry, guys. But so there was a vibrant community for sure. And I mean, with Neptune bringing the studio in, they did, we did eight or 10 shows a year and at least one tour. We kept touring for most of the time I was there. And a little theater school was attached to Neptune too. Mostly ran independently, but we would build their little, you know, fit in the back of a panel van set and teach the poor actors how to put it together in high schools. (laughs) Classic. Uh, And they had a studio, was the studio space new? Yeah, it was brand new. That's great. So it's interesting how that makes such a difference to in fostering um, smaller alternative groups or smaller like like companies that are just beginning. Because mm-hmm. um, you can't. I mean, not everyone can fill the big house, right? So yeah. um, that's remarkable. Um, were there a lot of independent uh, productions, like one-off kind of things that were through there, or was it? Yeah, the, some of those smaller companies I talked about would come in and rent this smaller space. Just in times, another one. I, that I remember they're like a comedy they're comedy true but that's actually they I mean they were a pro- really a professional theater company but uh and a lot of mime work but uh, they did fantastic stuff they probably in there once or twice a year uh, and we haven't talked about sort of your growth as a pmtd during this time as well like um you obviously freelanced in toronto but once you were doing these house gigs how did you feel um you as a TD and PM were growing. Uh, I guess TD at this point, well, production manager applies as well. Like, how did you find yourself growing over that period? What were some big lessons that you learned between doing summer stock, rep theater, and now full season at a, at a regional? Well, the two obvious ones were, especially going from freelance through to just summer, regardless of style, to full time, is, is long-term planning, both around the engineering nuts and bolts technical theater stuff you have a year-long budget to deal with but the more important one was learning how to deal with people because when you're freelancing it's a tdpm you hire your favorite guys and if there's someone you don't like you just won't hire them the next time which is not great but once you're working full-time and as a td uh, it's the production manager above you that essentially is a hiring firing level um so yeah and you don't want to be having arguments with people for the five years of your career. So you have to learn how to work with people in a different way, in a better way. That makes total sense. Um, anything else about uh, the East Coast that you wanted to, that you remember that is important for us to talk about professionally or even just uh, lessons learned? I think the big thing for me, thinking about it and thinking about this, but trying to keep into the design thoughts, is the amount of people I met in the design community and direction community from Alberta East. Um, and we used to joke it about a bit. I think it's still happening a bit. But uh, like we mentioned Brian Pritchard, he's from Winnipeg. And 
uh, Daniel McIver. He was an East Coast boy, but him and uh, his directing partner... Daniel Brooks. Daniel, Daniel Brooks, Brooks would yeah. come out and do a show. And so I'd meet all these uh, wide variety of Canadian designers and directing teams by working at Neptune because it was a regional. Um, more so than it ever happened to me in Vancouver until recently. Um, that's interesting. Uh, like I always f- like felt like the, the there were a lot of partnerships between Cannes Stage and Theatre Calgary or Cannes Stage and Vancouver Playhouse. Mm-hmm. But I guess those mountains were more of a, a psychological barrier, not just a physical one as well for people. Like, like That's part of it. I think there was also to do with what the Arts Club's perspective of what they were trying to accomplish here. And it's not a, it's not a negative thing, although we all kind of might have thought of that way. Like, why aren't we cross-pollinating a bit more? But they were really, really supportive of the local talent from the actors on up. So, uh, And I don't want to leave out your lighting design work here before we land in Vancouver. So, because uh, you had done some of that. Um, uh Mostly on the East Coast, where you yeah. found those opportunities, right? Matt, I, mo- I got to admit, most of it at the company as I was working for, not all of it. So I'm sure some of the reasons I got the opportunity, it wasn't to save a bunch of money except for travel costs. You know, it is cheaper to hire local regardless. But Linda gave me, Linda Moore gave me a couple of opportunities and uh, had a great time. We were really careful. I was really careful in talking to my electrician and my production manager about it and saying, I see a potential conflict of interest as being the TD and the lighting designer on the same show. I know it happens all the time, but we've talked about it up front. So like, if you see me ignoring the carpenters because I want the lighting to look better, like somebody should tell me. (laughs) That's a great point. That's a great point. Did did you find yourself, uh, uh, did you find that difficult to sort of do those two things at once or... Um, did those conflicts actually actually arise, or was it? They didn't much because by then, I mean, again, we had a good team out there, and the electrician uh, Daryl Shaw, the head of audio, Charlie Culver, um, Bob, the head carpenter, they'd all been there before me. Bob for a long time. He started as a as a assistant carpenter, I think, um, and they all worked well together. Sorry, what's Bob's last name? Do you remember? I really should because there's a. There's a award, technical award named after him at Neptune. Oh, okay. So I can find that out. Yeah. I'll cut this out and I'll put, I'll make sure I, I put him in the show notes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, go on. Um, so we had a pretty good working relationship with me as, as a TD and how I worked already. So the extra for me was just the extra time of doing the actual design work on top of, and on the hours and all that. But it's design work. It's a different part of your brain. It's exciting. Uh, and how would you compare... Like what, uh, what from your TD experience informed your lighting design work or was there anything? Because there's a lot, there's a lot of crossover between the two jobs, especially if you're working with freelance companies as a designer, um, you're doing a lot of the TD work, masking, yeah. um, schedule, like, like that kind of stuff is dictated a lot by lighting. Well, the way you put it, that could be part of why the hours are okay. Cause you're right. The masking and the fly plot, the mean stage carpenter would work on it. Like all that stuff I was doing as the TD anyway. Um, even though the designer would have decided, okay, here's when I, here's the inventory I want. Here's the, where I want the electrics to be. Uh, then I would still do the technical work of figuring out, fit into the rest of the build. Um, at least in Neptune anyways. But also, like I said, working with all those designers, uh, uh, I sat through a lot of rehearsals and talked to a lot of designers and got to see a lot of how, what kind of stuff works and what kind of stuff doesn't as design input. And that helped a lot. 
Uh, and also notice he worked a number of times with Ron Ulrich. Because mm-hmm. uh, he's got... It's, I mention it because um, he was at Muskoka. He worked at Muskoka Theater with uh, Andy Maudsley, who I worked with at Stage West. Ron Ulrich worked at Stage West, where I worked. He's also worked at the Neptune. He was the, not the Neptune, sorry, the... Uh, Theater Aquarius. Yeah, after Neptune. After Neptune, he's the AD at Theater Aquarius. And he was um, the dinner theater in Edmonton is where he came from to go to Neptune. Was that Stage West or was it the Mayfield? The Mayfield. The Mayfield. Yeah, yeah. I did a show there with Ron Jenkins about four years ago. Um, So uh, how was working with Ron Ulrich? um, I got along great with Ron, but he was the burr under the saddle for a lot of people when management changed, to be honest. Again, I'll try to say it without getting personal or because it's other people's decisions, but a lot of the changes in the way he wanted to do stuff and a lot of the crew felt that we were losing production value. We were given more time and choices of show and the choices of shows from our perspective were more interesting to work on when Linda was around. But uh, same thing, Neptune was not doing fantastic in the 90s money-wise, but the Actually, I know you want some replies. Right after a big renovation, fancy that. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny? Um, yeah. Uh, okay, that's interesting. Um, so uh, I just wanted to mention Skinny Saints because I've forgotten that you were the production manager on Skinny <laughs> Saints, which I lit. This was in 2000. No, this was in, like in the 90s. Six, 96, oh, it was after I was at Blythe because I had Ray Silverta's pickup truck still. So it must have been the fall of that year. I was at Blythe in 94, 95. It must have been fall of 95. Fall of 95, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was in Dance Makers, right? It was in Dance above Makers the, Space. Above the automotive paint shop? Exactly, yeah, <laughs> when they were on DuPont. Uh, Pippa Domville, Philippa Domville was the choreographer slash director. Um, Lee Kerr, uh, another cohort from Ryerson, mm-hmm. was their stage manager. Um, and tell me about this book, because I had forgotten about the book that we, this book prop that you worked on. Well, I got, I got him in, I can't remember the lines that led up to it, but Skinny Saints, obviously, it was about uh, anorexia and dealing with just yeah, that was, kind of trouble. Yeah, and it was, it was told through the lens of, a, of the Blessed Virgin Mary, some sort of religious aspect to it, right? Yeah, yeah. so so I can't remember the uh, character motivation, but why the, this book had to happen. But we had to build essentially a giant Bible that would open up. And all the light would pour out of it. And I think this is the same show. And then it's a while ago. They put them back. Then it also had to burst into flames. <laughs> and we're back there. We had professional training from Ryerson, uh, trying to do things right, even though all the rigs weren't existing already. So, Yeah, it was... Uh, I remember borrowing a, bu- borrowing a bunch of lights from, from my contacts in Kitchener to fill up that space too it was a big show in a little I mean the dance space the dance maker space was not very small but there was not a lot of gear in it yeah so anyways that's just a nice room <laughs> I totally had <laughs> forgotten about Skinny Saints God, that's where a lot of the good stories come from yeah right exactly like, I mean I flew a wheelchair in the theater center in a place that had a what 12 foot grid <laughs> this is what it was down on queen street west yeah at uh, major powell yeah. i just spoke with glenn davidson about that yeah that was a tiny the grid was like yeah, uh, yeah 11 feet 12 feet off the ground and yeah. Yeah. this is another the little challenges i remember me now that was i think it was called eddie candy side a steve lucas design of course of course it was steve lucas <laughs> um yeah, and I yeah little things like that. I remember having to rig. Like speaking about strange things, I I remember having to rig a um, a flying 
person. We flew somebody at a church. Um, you were not there. Nathaniel was there. I, I, I this is after I'd worked at Stage West, and uh, I think I was doing a show. Audley Mason was the designer. Um, it was for um, it was for a uh, Toronto company that I just forgotten the name of, but they had done. It was at Saint Stephen of the Fields mm-hmm. in Toronto, which was a small church on Bathurst at Bathurst in uh, College, and. Um, the idea was that someone was on a table in like sort of the Christ pose and the table top would come off of the table and then the person would fly out. This is a church. <laughs> like it's, we're in the apps. It, the apps is 60 feet high mm-hmm. and we had to, I bore rope. This is ridiculous. I borrow, I got some rope from the grand. They had just changed all their hand lines off. It was like three quarter inch hemp. Um, but hemp that was also many years old, uh. right? But three quarter inch hemp, like it was pretty big, strong rope, sure. And uh, like got some shivs from YPT and then rented a snorkel lift and was up 60 feet in the air, which is way too high for a snorkel lift, let me tell you. Mm-hmm. About for tying, rigging shivs to a wooden beam in the apse of the church. And uh, and then try to find an anchor point, like literally hammer drilling into the brick of the apps with the, to, to put like anchors. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever done and so unsafe. And they flew him every night. And I co-opted Nathaniel Kennedy in coming down because yeah. <laughs> I was like, I need to make sure that I'm not doing something absolutely crazy. Just a little bit crazy. Just make sure it's a little bit crazy and that no one's going to die. Thankfully, no one died, but that would never happen. That should never happen. Don't ever try this. Please, listening audience. It was terrible. Um, okay. So uh, you moved back to Vancouver. Now, um, you uh, are the current proprietor. Yeah, uh, me and one business partner. It's okay. 50-50. And what's your, what's your business partner's name? Robert Hamilton. I'm oh. sure people across the country know Rob pretty well. Certainly in BC. Mm-hmm. He was a teacher at Douglas College for 25 years. So that's a good way to get your... Right. Everybody remembers you from school. And now you got 25 years worth of technicians in the field. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about the your, your journey as, um, as a TD, first out here at the Arts Club, and then to um, taking over... Um, a design consultancy. I moved back to Vancouver because, like I say, I had already left Neptune, so I was having a hard time making the bills uh, freelancing out in uh, Nova Scotia. Plus, it's where I'm from. And even though I said like I didn't hadn't seen a career path when I worked as a like a call technician at the Arts Club, I had walked by their prop shop and knew that they were a cool regional theater company. So once the posting was there, it was just like a, you know. I got to apply, go home. I can afford to move and go home if I have a full-time job. And it was expensive here then, not nearly what we talk about with Vancouver real estate today. So that's essentially why I came back. Uh, But then, you know, landed into another regional theater with, and the stories, good and bad, about the Arts Club could be a seven-day interview. Uh, But uh, came back and was working at, the big house as a TD. So we did five shows a year and I lasted there for two and a half years before the, I think the safest one that actually kind of covers everything with the budget pressures. It's kind of drove me mental of us. This company I felt was trying to do more art than they could afford to do kind of safely without burning people out. And it's kind of burnt me out. Rumor has it. I was the longest running technical director still 
at the Stanley. Wow. Because I went there in year 10, and they'd already been through five and a half. Right. Wasn't Tim O'Gorman at the Stanley as well at some point? I don't know if Tim ever was. Jason McLean again was. Mm-hmm. Jason McLean's had a lot of jobs that I had later. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, and it also, you were here... Uh, like this is the early 2000, 2003, right? Yeah. So, uh, and only there for two years, but um, that was a time when a lot of people were struggling. Mm-hmm. Like that was after, uh, certainly in Toronto, it was after SARS. Yep. Uh, you're, you're two after SARS, 2011. Oh, worldwide, it was a year after. The, when I went on tour, it was the, in October of 2011. Right. So lots of just cultural stories to talk about that. That was interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that was, a, that was a difficult time. So I'm not surprised that they were struggling with budgets as well. Yeah. Um, so then I left and went to the Chan Center, which is, again, I just applied for a head stage technician job. Couldn't be called a carpenter because of the union titles. At uh, the Chan Center, which is a concert hall, which is actually kind of key in the long run to what I do here to broaden my experience. In theater, I already brought experience in departments. Um, but I hadn't done a, lot, a whole lot of music. And so then I did two years at the Chan Center, which was everything from high school bands to international piano artists to rock and roll. So that was, I learned a lot there. And you say it was a non-union position, so you were like a TD kind of position? No, no, it was or? a union position. It was a union position. But carpenters were part of a different union. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. That's <laughs> interesting. What union were they, carpenters? Uh, they were QP, different local. Oh, different. So the whole the whole place is QP, not IA. Yeah. Well, the story goes, and I think this is true. It's secondhand, but I think it's true. Essentially, so it's uh, I went there. who was about five years old, but it was a pretty new building, and it was built from scratch. So it was a brand new building on campus. Going to be a concert hall. They need to staff it, and IA made a big play and lots of lobbying. Say, if you're going to hire technicians, we need to be unionized technicians, and IA is the union, and they're right about that. But the university turned around and said, you know what? You're right. They have to be union. We have seven unions on campus already because it's such a big campus. So our our uh, theater technicians for the drama department, for the theater department, are part of QB, whatever number we were. Okay. So you're, these new stagehands can be part of that union. Yeah. yeah. So I like to tell my IA friends that, that yes, I am a union Stagehand, I'm just not an IA stagehand. Right. <laughs> as a QP, as a current QP member of Local 905, uh, through my other job, uh, I appreciate that you guys are all QP out here, my yeah. brother. So that was the story. The outside workers, like all the maintenance crew, were Q, a different QP local. Right. So couldn't be called a carpenter. Oh, I see. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and you were there for five years. No. Uh, yes, I was there for five years. I was there two and a half years full time before okay. I came over here. And by then I was top of the roster. So I stayed on to keep my hand in doing technical work. Um, Formally, I'm still on the roster there. I only do one or two calls a year and it's probably been, it's been almost a year since I've been on the deck. Same kind of thing though, where you get called uh, like by seniority. Yep. They got a bit of a, a schedule request style of doing it, but essentially, yeah. And they finally replaced me as my full-time position last fall. Um, great. So tell me about um, DWD Theatre Design and Consulting. Like who, first of all, what does the DWD stand for? There's lots of answers to that. <laughs> okay. formally, formally, it stands for Douglas Welch Designs. Right. So uh, I came here in uh, 2008, two years before the Olympics. Douglas Welch 
he was also a production manager of the arts club. So he's got a, a good history in the Vancouver theater scene. He was running into the theater consultancy, all sorts of stuff going on, trying to build up for the Olympics. And one of his consultants was having uh, long-term uh, health issues. So the company kind of needed help. I knew Rob Hamilton already through CITT and being around, and he thought I would be a good fit. And it took him four or five months of bugging me. You should go talk to Doug. Then he needs help. Uh, and I finally took it up on him and actually cold called Doug and just said, I hear you're looking for some help. Uh, let's go for coffee. And we had two coffees and he hired me the next day. I also took advantage of being coming from a university to do six months leave of absence formally. So I had a six month trial period from Doug's perspective, him trying me out. And from my perspective that if it didn't work out, I could fall back. But I got thrown into the deep end and learned a lot and built some fun buildings in my first two and a half years. So I quit uh, the Jan Center full time. Right. Uh, what were those buildings? Tell me about your projects that you worked on. My first three projects here were all had the early design work had already started, but I finished the renovations of the Vancouver Cultural Center, the renovations of the Queen Elizabeth Theater, and the installation of five venues for the SFU's downtown campus. That's ridiculous. That's my big shiny list of this is the kind of stuff I can do. Right. And I did it all early on uh, with some good architectural teams. Um, actually, all three of those were with the same architecture firm that were really great to work with. And at the time, our office was a floor above them in a building that we all shared. So it was a very, very good relationship. Um, that's terrific. We'll get to the sort of process of consulting in a little while. I just want to sort of finish up this transition. Um, so that was not good enough for you. You actually had to purchase the business, right? Like you took over from Doug Welch. Well, Doug wanted to leave. He yeah. he, he uh, spun a lighting, an interior lighting and event, not events, interior lighting design and architectural lighting design company as a design build company out of... Douglas Welch Designs. That was a long-term plan of his. When um, when I worked on the Queenie, it was the end of a seven phases of uh, renovations on the Queenie Playhouse complex. And he essentially had promised his architecture friends and um, the city staff at the time, okay, I'll, I'll still be a theater consultant at least until that's done. And then as soon as that was all done, he didn't want to do it anymore. Right. And some of that is the difference between design build and consulting, which we can talk about later too. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the QE and um, the QE. Yeah, and the arts and the sorry, the Playhouse because the Playhouse is no longer Vancouver Playhouse is no longer Vancouver Playhouse Company. Company is no longer with us, yeah. but the venue is still there. Yeah, the venue is still a civic venue. Yeah, we talked about this with um, Alan Brody. Took us through um, <clears throat> a bit of the steps of the demise of the company. Um, Any do you, was was it already done when you had done finished the renovations? Nope, they were there for, they were there, I think, again, this is me a couple steps away, Alan Brody worked with them much closer, but kind of were holding on, hoping the Olympics and the crowds might save them, because I think it was, if it wasn't 2010, it was a year or two after that that they folded. Okay, any specific insight on that that you have that you want to share, or not for the listeners, just for the beers afterward? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is so many rumors, but... um, they didn't have a good deal with the city and whether or not the city was too aggressive with asking them rent, whether it was them 
competing against Eretz Club because they, I mean, they were. <laughs> there could have been part of it. That's true. Um, okay, so uh, so Doug Welch leaves mm-hmm. and spins off his own. Uh, he, now he's working as a as an architectural lighting designer. Yep. That's his gig. Uh, and then you decided to with your partner with Rob. And Rob had been working for Doug since the '90s. So Rob has been doing this 20 years longer than me. But really, what it came down to is if we didn't buy the company off, and we were looking for work. Right. <laughs> and because it's a service company. Um, we got a pretty good deal. It was kind of buying the reputation in a way. Uh, and formally, the ongoing projects. Somebody had to finish them up. Oh, that's right. Of course. Um, okay. Um, and you've been here ever since. This is the November 2008? Yep. Ten, ten years. Ten years. That's a long time. Finally hung around somewhere. I know. <laughs> Crazy. And you've been here in Vancouver since 2004. Or 2001? 2002? Yep. God. Okay, that's a long time. I hadn't considered that you'd been here that long. That's crazy. <laughs> I just feel old, that's all. Hi there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. Uh, it does cost money to produce this time capsule of Canadian theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I continue to put out great interviews with designers like Scott Miller. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. And we're back now. Um, okay. What is a theater design consultant or, and, and how do they <laughs> fit into the process? Because you're not an architect. No, nope. not an acoustician. Nope. And... Some of the bigger firms, there's a couple of international, very large theater consulting firms. This is like Artec is the one I know in the States, right? Artec Theater Projects. Right. Theater Theater Consultants Collaborative. uh, Fisher Dax are actually another big one. They might have, whether they're full-time as part of of their team, an architect working for them as opposed to the other way around, and an acoustician on staff. We're two, three guys, so no, we don't. One of the biggest things we answer all the time is, no, we're not acousticians. You're going to need to hire them separately. It's a bit of some of the tricks around getting the job without looking like it's costing an arm and a leg. I mean, that ties into theater design, too. A lot of people, the regionals and most of the people you've been talking to and get it, but a lot of people don't like to pay for design. They don't know why they need to pay for design. Um. I mean, that's, I mean, the obvious next question is, what are you designing? We, yeah, and you've been saying we're theater design consultants, which is great because we do consider ourselves designers. The reason our name is theater design plus consulting is because you don't always do both. <laughs> theater consultant would be sort of the formal title. We essentially design any space and the equipment that goes in it that hints of live performance. 90% of our work is stuff everyone would think of as the theater or performance space. But we do the odd church. Some theater consultants do a lot. We've done the odd city hall. Uh, we've done one or two cinemas that also have a lecture component. Um, so that kind of stuff. Uh, so the architect designs a box and you design the stuff that goes in the box? Well, that's where it comes down to who, when you get hired and who hires first. So no, the biggest thing and why, and 
where I think you really need a theater consultant to come in early is to help the architect design the box. If we come in after they've already drawn something, it's still a design process and there's lots of iteration, maybe more than happens in theater, except at the individual designer's own drafting table. Um, So you can change some stuff quite a bit, but it gets harder and harder the closer you get to opening, right from the beginning. Um, So we'd start with actually space planning and, and adjacency planning and things like that. So adjacency planning, like what? Where does the rehearsal go? What's the? Where's the lobby in 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 the, its proximity to the stage and yep. noise and things like that? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit of one of my little sales pitch lines, but I point when people ask, "Oh, so you're not architects, but you work with architects?" It's like, yeah, because an architect that's really good at theater and has done a bunch, on average, might have done three, seven, or ten, whereas our firm's done two hundred fifty of all. I mean, all sizes, obviously, but that tied with purposely working with people with production background, which is why I fit in pretty well. And when we hire outside associates to help us, the, we want all that experience of operating that architects, they just don't have. It seems obvious to us. In the lobby and the stage, it'll get right and dressing is kind of generally, but that's where we, that's actually where we come in to tell the architect, oh no, actually catwalks need to be this high and they need to be this far into the stage for the lighting to work. And the other big ones and the high level is, so that's how much space do you need and where does it go? How much electricity do you need? Another big one that surprises people, how much structure do you need to hold up all this stuff? And therefore, how much mechanical plumbing and heating do you need to put it all together? Right, even even down to we have to roll a two-ton truck across the stage, so you have to have this kind of structure. Like your stage has to be built Yep. If you want to have a sprung floor plus support all this way, it has to be built in this way. Is that like... Yep, that's exactly right. Right. Um, wow. My uh, my own experience, <clears throat> I've never been involved in the build of a new space or the renovation of a new space, but uh, I worked at the Center in the Square. I talked about the Center in the Square a lot on the show just because that's my own personal experience, but it was designed... It was, the theater consults were Artec on mm-hmm. that. Yep. And you can tell if you've been in another Artec space, the problem solving that they do... Um, is is you can tell from the room that like oh this is an art tech space yep. because of the way they solve problems, uh, at least in the early in the eighties or the late seventies. <clears throat> um, but uh, they have uh, they have a crazy sprung floor um, that is uh, well, I mean it's sprung, but it also has to take these like seven ton rolling orchestra <laughs> towers on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember they cored through it to put a trap in for phantom when it came through in the early 90s the damn floor is like three foot thick like between the concrete and the the lapping whatever seed i don't know what it is birch something i don't know what it is i have no idea i have no idea what what the floor is the floor is i have no idea what it's made out of and then it ends on this kind of railway car rubberized top Mm -hmm. um but uh so you're telling me that architects and this is a dumb question, but architects have no idea that that's what a theater should have. Like, what would they put there instead? Just well, it's a- not that they have no idea, but they, like I said, because they don't have the experience. If they were doing it from scratch and they didn't hire us formally as part of the team, they would just go out and ask the client. And maybe the client knows and maybe they don't. Maybe, you know, some, another way to describe it sometimes for some projects is we're kind of like a translator. Like, I didn't know a lot about the construction industry when I started, but now I know a bunch, a lot. Uh, and the theater people don't know that necessarily. Same way the architect doesn't necessarily know how the theater works, so they put me in the middle to, to kind of translate in both directions. 
in some ways, when you're talking about working with designers, stuff that comes from being a PM and a TD, to back up or not, some of the questions that are asked will get asked by both the client and the architect. So they asked for this. Do they really do that in theater? <laughs> and I, you know, it's part of the job. And, you, and we, I'm not a formal member of an association at the moment, but there's ethics to it and architects get it. It's like, if I think that my client as a theater person is asking for something a little bit over the top for what they said they're going to do, I, I'm just straight up with that. It's like, yeah, no. <laughs> That, that reminds me of places that are supposed to be multifunctional. Like you've got an or a symphony that is there, plus touring productions, mm -hmm. plus a house, but plus they house their own company and they build something in the shop. Like that seems like a lot of different masters that you're trying to. Oh yeah. Appeal to. How do you manage that? Like, <laughs> remember when you asked me what did I learn about being a TD full time? Is how to work with different personalities and people, work with design brains and technical brains that might be on the on the uh, stage. Um, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of it's politics and personality as much just like theater is. Uh, especially when you're talking about multi-use spaces or multiple companies going in. Uh, interesting. Okay, so um, let's say you're at the beginning of the process. I mean, you also do small like renovations and oh, yeah, yeah. like like. The other thing we do is we'll do, and we're doing it more lately because um, grants have been offered for this specifically is to go into an older space that or small spaces like we all started out in they don't even have a full-time td they got an ad and a gm maybe and they freelance someone in so no one's really tasked with looking after the building and it starts to fall apart sometimes it's money and sometimes people just don't know so they can hire me to go in and do multiple steps usually starting out with i've looked at a whole bunch of theaters so i'll look at yours and tell you Here's what's missing for the kind of work you do. And here's how much it's going to cost to bring it up to what you dream. And then always hear some other options <laughs> if you can't afford to get to your dream. Because sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I don't want to leave them with the only option is to do nothing because then I don't feel like I'm helping out. It seems uh, just in the way that theaters work, like how often do you get brought in when they are looking to design a capital campaign. Like they know they have to renovate the theater. They think they can raise a half a million dollars or $2 million or whatever the number is. Um, how soon, like I would think, like the minute they go, I think we should do a renovation. That's when they should get a theater consultant. But how, yep. how often does that happen? Not very often, but more, like I say, there's been some good uh, government support lately targeting grants at that because they've seen people start projects without planning ahead and then they're not great projects um in my, and i don't know what my clients think they're all happy with the reports we do but one in ten ends up happening turning into building and another piece that some theater consultant firms do that we don't do a ton of we partner with people do is that management side of it early on um going out to the community like for that example, they want to renovate. So you hire another per person that can help you. will go into the community and re-identify, do you actually have the audience or the sponsor support to support a $200,000, 2 $20 million project? We've done a lot of projects where uh, they're big enough. They're, that person comes in, we come in, and we also work with an architect. Because architects, as um, project managers and planners, are huge help if you get the right one. 
to put together that whole thing. So we got the management side that's kind of stopped with how much a building costs except that square footage and us on the other side going, here's what ballet companies want. Here's what producing companies want. Here's what small roadhouses want and give them the input to, to come up with a cost. And we always price out all the equipment on our own. <coughs> Excuse me. That's, that's really fascinating. Uh, and um, when you're working with an architect, uh, how, and an acoustician for that matter, like who has the decision-making power? Like for the architect to go, that's ugly, we can't do it that way. But the acoustician goes, yeah, but if you want to put a symphony in here, you're going to have to put banners or wood here or something, or it has to be this shape to be reflective. Like who well, has the final say? The owner. When it really comes down to it, the owner has the final say. And sometimes that that always involves money. <laughs> so formally, yeah, the owner. Um, and then it is kind of in this way, like theater. Depends on the team. Does the director have the final say in everything? Kind of, but not really necessarily. Um, the architect is usually what we call the lead consultant with everyone working whether or not they're working for them, kind of reporting to them with information. And that's their job to coordinate it all together. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and then uh, just last kind of team-based question, how much input do you, let's say it's a space that has a full-time tech crew mm-hmm. uh, or even a full-time, well, I guess a TD, but like the crew themselves are actually going to have to walk through the space and turn that light on or whatever. How much uh, input do you get from them in your... Uh, in your kind of ergonomic um, questions, or like, like how do you access the grid? How do you get to the oh, booth? Yeah, yeah. How do you? Well, it's more than ergonomic. It's the whole systems. If there's a staff on, it actually kind of comes down to how much time they have. If it's a really good team, like we've worked with the Queenie and some other big regional theaters, um, and I'll tell the head electrician there's like, hell yeah, man. As far as what's current lighting and all that, you're gonna know probably more than me in that department. Um, but the process of translating about how to communicate that to a construction crew and the process of coordinating with your other team and, to be honest, just the paperwork of drawing up what we want, writing a spec for what we want, lots of schedules and stuff of what we want, and making sure it all matches. There's just a time commitment for that. That's On those jobs, sometimes that's a big reason why people hire us. And as well, we've been talking about it, but you know, we've got the odd job where, well, the theater company knows that their head electrician and head audio hate each other. So they can't trust them to work together to come up with something that's balanced. So then we're kind of coming in and yeah, being referee or making choices at a third party yeah. who's dis, who's not interested in, who just is you know, responsible for the client's budget line and and purpose and some of it especially i mean this is more obvious in the small towns is and when it's public money whether you want to call it double check or whether you want to call it uh external research or whatever it's some people it's like no we can't just trust just our guys Mm -hmm. and some of it's legit because they've only worked here Mm -hmm. lots of good input but if they don't know that oh there's these other three things we're tried at other theaters and two of them work Mm -hmm. do you think they'll work for you guys to bring that input in that's another reason why you would hire us, even if you got a very smart team. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! I'm a gassy. Uh, okay, so remind, I'm not going to ask this question now, but remind me. I want to talk about the change in theater architecture, as far as systems architecture. Sorry, like um, 
for example, gone are the days of the patch panel oh, or yeah, the yeah. stage pin at the side of the thing to plug into the front of the house. Now it's all LED, yep. just dimmer distribution. Like, I really want to have those kind of discussions because I'm really fascinated by it. <laughs> and I don't know because I missed out in the last, like, 10 years. Um, okay. Um, so let's go back to uh, the process then. So uh, they want to do renovation. They've talked to somebody about how much money it's going to cost. They have an architect who said, you need to raise $5 million. They've got the $5 million. Now they're looking to hire a theater consultant. Who hires them, the architect or the client? 50-50. And for a bunch of reasons, uh, we suggest they hire us direct. It's a follow-up to your question of who has control. And I said the owner has the control. So if our input goes to the owner and the architect at the same time, like your, just to use a small example, your control booth needs to be twice as big. And we tell the owner that, and we send the same email to the architects, please make the control booth twice as big. Now, if the architect doesn't do it, they're directly not, you know, unless the owner tells them not to do it, they're going to do it. Whereas if we go straight to the architect, they're become a buffer between us and the owner sometimes. And again, it's about the firms and the individuals. And the egos, again, just just like theater. Because um, as much as w- stakeholders is a buzzword in lots of places, but for us, the stakeholders are the actors and the audience and the technicians and the janitor and the maintenance guys are going to be in this building. But formally, we're still a business. So if we are working for the architect and the architect says, you're not carbon copying the owner anymore, sometimes we do anyways because we think it's important and then it's all fine. Sometimes we do and we get smacked. So if I was a, an owner, if I was a company, it's in my best interest to hire an architect and then contract separately the consultant. Yep. What about the acquisition? Like, is that a third then? Same thing. So The way controlling. the team can go together is, yeah, they, you would usually, and you can hire all the, the, the big ones, the architecture, structural, mechanical, electrical, ASME. Um, whether you hire them all directly or those all go through the architect is it's pretty common, but the specialty ones can go either way in theater consulting in particular, because the equipment cost and is so specialized, specialized for your particular crew. It's so high. You also can save a bit of money on everyone else's overhead of how many people paper paperwork has to go through. Okay, so just step back a second and say again all the different departments so we know exactly who's involved. We have architect. How big, how big of a project? Let's say it's you're building a regional theater. Like, let's right. just go big. Um, um, like, like Chilliwack wants to have the Chilliwack Center for the Arts. And yep. they're going to tour rock bands, and they're going to have the Chilliwack, Chilliwack Symphony. <laughs> and they're Which, going to have Chilliwack is going to actually come to the stage and play. And, and we did that. Yeah. We built that building. Well, well I, we always say we build that building, yeah. and then I always caveat. It's like, no, well, we helped build that building. Okay, okay. <laughs> so you've got the architect, you've got the client, you've got mechanical? Mechanical, structural, uh, electrical, okay. ASME. Those are the big, and the real, the real formal ones. Like some, when we say we're an architect, someone has to sign up on code and go their building permit and all that. And for a big project, it's got to be an architect. Assembly space for the public, that's what you got to do. But then you got us. You probably have an acoustician. If it's a really, really big place, you might have we, – we will usually do um, AV inside the theater. But if it's really, really big, we'll hire someone just to do the sound system. You might have an AV consultant to do meeting IT stuff and then right down to you can have a vertical 
you can have a vertical circulation consultant if your building's big enough to have elevators and escalators. So you can have then some. <laughs> Sorry, vertical circulation expert is someone who deals with moving people between floors. Yeah. You're saying, okay. Yeah. That's crazy. But then the ones that uh, you've heard of, and you just when you start to think about it, you go, oh yeah, um, kitchen for if you got a if you got a a bar, usually me and the architect will do it. But if you got anything bigger, you might hire a kitchen consultant. Maybe it's a company that does it. Landscape, interior design, often wrapped into the architectural team, and in their office, but sometimes separate. Uh, yeah, and the so, architectural lighting designers will be different. Will be the, the people can be, the, can, can be separate. Can be the, separate. The, that one comes down to how fancy your building is. Sure. If it's pretty straightforward, uh, we'll help the electrical engineer do the inside the theater house lighting, and they'll do everything else. Right. We'll always we always comment on that stuff. From a uh, try and again, it depends on the contract and who we're working for. But first step from a performance use of space kind of perspective um we try to stay away from the interior design sometimes we can't resist and we want to and we always want to but that's a trick that's another little tricky team thing to figure out uh and but how about standards there are certain i mean the ies in the u.s set standards for public spaces and how much you know how many foot candles that Yep. Or lumens, whatever. Or lux, excuse me. You should have per square foot. Do you, uh, are there standards that you follow, or is this the architect dealing with that, or who sets we're, those parameters? We're aware. Uh, oh, yeah. And a code consultant separate from everybody can be as their own thing to do the last check. We're aware of all those things. And when we help design, we try to get close. But it, again, formally has to be the electrical engineer to say, because there's ASME too, which is uh, how many watts per square foot you can even use for lighting never mind what it looks like uh do you have energy efficiency consultants as well to say to i've never seen a direct energy efficiency consultant but if you're doing a lead building that's a known whole nother person lead is a lot of paperwork and that's a standard that's a standardized environmentally friendly or whatever zero emission something building right yeah yeah there's some controversy about how effective it is in the world um We've done a few buildings that are LEED qualified, but not LEED certified. And it's because the amount of paperwork you have to do to get certified and the amount of after construction testing, which I understand from a certification body, but okay, you have so to come back a year later and say, are you actually using the energy you said you're going to use? Yeah, did you leave all the lights on when you went, when you went home? Um, okay, so I, we won't go too far down yeah. that pathway, but I'll leave in the show notes. I'll do a little research and have a link to those standards if people want to read them and be envious or be thankful that you didn't put them into your space. Yeah. Um, okay. oh, just to finish off on that sure. one, to mention the building code again, same thing. We're aware of all the codes and we try to keep up on all the codes. Um, but they're always to be interpreted by the local authorities, much like fire rules are, so that we can't take formal responsibility for it. That's going to be the engineer who... Engineer and architect. and architect. But we want to know enough to not lend, send them down a garden path because then they're not going to like us, and they're not going to hire us again. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay, then back to the hiring. So how do you bid on a project? Is this, I guess it depends if it's a private or a public entity, uh, but how do you even approach? The big, middle to big ones all come out as requests for proposals. Usually there's government websites for a lot of them. We try to be enough in the network of people that we'll get an email saying, hey, yeah, this job's coming up. A lot of it is old school networking as far as finding out about it. And then we put in a proposal with a big fee and hope they hire us. Mm-hmm. 
And it comes back to the team thing, whether we're working, if we're working for the architect, our proposal just goes to them and it wraps up into a big fee. And if they don't get it, we don't get it. There's a bit of uh, politics around whether we will go exclusive with one architect on a project. Again, being so specialized, we really don't like doing that. Um, but the architects all want us to, so it kind of depends on how big and how public it is. Makes sense. Uh, and so you bid, you do the magical bidding, whatever magic bidding thing happens. I've never been on a project, but I imagine there's like, where do you want to sit? And do you want to undercut everybody else? And they're like, are you competing with mostly Canadian firms or is it, are the American firms all? Last, since well? 2008, we've been on big jobs, we've been competing with American firms and we don't like that. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. Just being a businessman, it's like, we can do it just as good as you. We're closer. But uh, it is what it is. There's one or two other people on the western side of Canada that we compete with on a regular basis. And we never know what each other are bidding. We all ask and we all say, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, you don't want to tell people that at all. Um, okay, great. And so um, if it is a smaller project, um, you may be... Probably only one or two people are bidding on it, right? For the small yeah, rentals. and the really small ones, we try. Sometimes we can get away with being the only bidder, because um, if it's less than ten, twenty thousand dollars, that city or that board is more comfortable um, if we put in a good proposal, especially the early planning ones. And sometimes we've done early planning ones, and then the big project comes through. You're actually going to build something, and you got to compete again, and don't get it, and that's a that's no fun either. It's a not, yeah, annoying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how long does it take you to do a bid? Like, I guess it depends on the. Let's say it's a mid mid to large size theater. Couple of days. Oh, okay. Um, a lot of it is boilerplate. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, but you got to match the scope of work to what they've asked for. Sometimes you have to interpret what they've asked for and give them something that uh, formally meets what they've asked for, even though you don't think it's what they want. Those are tricky. That's more talking to designers in theater. Yeah. Um, certainly informed me on that. Right. You, do you mean like they've asked for this? It's crazy. We really do it this way. So we have to sort of tell them what they want to hear, but also go, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. And how many of the um, people will call them games, but it's part of uh, construction business and other businesses too. How much of it is, no, we'll get the job and then we'll convince them to change their mind afterwards. We do, I forget which job, was it the Bell? Which is a really nice big 1,200-seater that Rob did uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, the entire theater was an addendum to the project. So like $5 million add-on to a school. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's usually the other way. We want to build a theater, but then it gets cut because we had one of the money. Because yeah. we had to build HVAC something. something. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> so it's an addendum. That's fun, though. I mean... Yep. Um, the other reason we like to get involved early and work for the owner, because sometimes you can work, uh, there's so many way, ways that the projects come together, but a lot of the public school jobs, those are the, again, where you're kind of trying to interpret, because if you ask the drama teacher what the drama think, teacher thinks a theater should be, and they mostly know how theater works and what a theater is, but their terminology might not be up to current, and they're asking for what high school needs, but saying it's going to be community and it's really, really thin on details. So you can, yeah, this is the hard ones. You can say, yeah, no, I can design what you asked for, and we can build it for a million dollars. 
But once we get into it, I know that what you're really looking for is a $2 million project. So what do I, what fees do I suggest? <laughs> yeah, that's always a challenge too. I remember the, uh, when they built, I, I moved into a space when I was uh, in high school. They had built a new, th- new school and they made a cafetorium. And uh, I don't think there was a consultant. Uh, there, there was a lighting company that mm-hmm. spec'd the th- uh, gear and the dimmers and everything. And the architect, you know, who designed schools, designed the cafetorium. Uh, and so the whole thing was painted blue, not black. And uh, we had to make a bunch of choices afterwards. But the lighting was like <laughs> as cheap as you could probably find it. Um but they certainly, even in those scale projects, you still, like having a theater consultant to sort of make sure it has some longevity uh, is probably well worth it. Like yeah. you probably save as much money over the long term than they would have. And you're willing to like to finish that thought. So if we're working on that job, we can do, it's a smaller project for us in our office, mm-hmm. but we can help write up that RFP. So we do a lot more advanced work. If that's going to go to an architecture team that hire a different theater consultant, maybe. And then we're just shadowing what they do and saying, hey, yeah, you're right. You were doing what we asked for. No, you're not. Um, some people think it's like they're hiring two people now. But because we've got to do enough detail to get what people want, which we were good at because we can write specs for the actual construction. Um, but sometimes the owner, especially public, they don't want you to. The whole point is not to design it yet because they're going to go out to three or four architects and get bids to finish that work. So That makes sense. Uh, okay, so uh, what is uh, this? Is just a random question. What is your favorite part of the whole design? Like, do you like you like? I would enjoy the lighting architecture. That seems to be like the easiest thing for me to do. But uh, is it um, you know seeing seating and, and traffic layout, like 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 audience uh, layout, or is it? I really like the planning, the space planning, and the structure that goes with it. Part of that is because. I was never formally a rigger, but my stage carpenter experience and trying to get that right and working with the structural engineers um, about how the big building goes together. That's a good question, too. Like the engineering, um, I had a, uh, I knew somebody who went down to Yale and got uh, an MFA in uh, technical direction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the training, unlike in the undergrad where you're kind of a generalist, uh, a lot of the training was basically an engineering Oh, yeah. You're I, not getting the ring and everything, but you know you're you're learning about physics and structural engineering and materials and everything else. Um, when you build a ringing system, I mean, it's a very specific theater machinery that you know how it's operated. You know what the kind of parameters it has to undergo. But a, a structural engineer would not have any knowledge of that. Like no. How do you play? How do you design a system that has to be safe? within a factor of three or seven or whatever they're using and uh, meets uh, engineering standards. Like how do you... Well, that's why I like going back and forth with the engine, those engineers. I like them all kind of depends on the job, but structural I fall back to a lot because we essentially, we do have some guidelines that never made it to formal standards on what structural loads that go on a stage in a flyhouse that riggers have to know. Like a loft block is, well, I'm not going to say it off the top of my head. Sure. But, uh, well, like we all know the 2,000-pound line set and how much you can hang in the middle of the lines and all that kind of stuff. So that's the information we give to the engineer, and then they'll convert that into a great big superstructure. Oh, the next pass is us going through, okay, yeah, we weren't really specific, but, you know, you can't put a cross brace there because there's going to be a door there from the architect. Right. So there's a, whole, a lot of the 
design process early on is coordination between all these disciplines. Right. So again, just getting a bit more technical, they have to, the structural engineer, like you have a certain machinery for, let's say, a 2,000 pound line set, mm-hmm. and you know it has to have seven uh, lift lines, and then it goes down to an arbor, and there's a thing, and you design all that stuff, but then they have to design the steel that that hangs off of and have to spec. Yeah, the, we'll, we'll spec what those laugh blocks have to hold. Yeah. We'll tell them exactly, and then they'll tell me because it's also so much snow in this region, and also the stage is this deep, so it's a 12-inch high I-beam or it's a 14-inch high beam, or we're going to use open web steel joists in this building. And that's the kind of stuff I've been learning in the job, which is kind of cool. That is very cool. Uh, it sounds fascinating. This is the kind of work that I would probably want to transition into if I was still in theater. Uh, but I'm not. So, uh, okay, that's great. So rigging, mm-hmm. stage floor. Like, um, how do you... Um, What's the current tech in? This is a another ridiculous question. Sorry, I have all these curious things. Uh, what is the current tech in like floor technology? Like, are people still building spaces with trap doors? Like, what's the nature of a sprung floor? We try to get a sprung floor in every single space, and we're ninety ninety percent of uh, the time successful. The underside of the sprung floor, there's been few material uh, advances. Not many. It's mostly still rubber cones on a under plywood or some kind of two by four cross section, uh, mostly like the dancers once springier ones and stop blocks to take the weight. Um, so that construction has been pretty similar, but every job I do with a new stage, we talk about not in no particular order. Do you want a linoleum floor, hardwood floor or a masonite floor? And I usually end up having two in the spec like not at the same time, but like we start with one and they change their mind or vice versa. And lots and lots of debates about what's the best top surface for a floor these days. Because there's also plastic uh, recycled composites that some people use now too. Yeah, we had, uh, sorry, again, back at the center of the square, we had some sort of rubberized, like it was liquid that was sort of poured or pa- painted or something on the mm-hmm. ground. Wow, and that's interesting. It it's was probably a vinyl or something. Yeah, I know that they... Uh, um, they also would it was also a floor that could be drilled and lagged into I know we lagged a number of like mm-hmm. the old production arts um, um, touring booms yeah. right there was just box yeah, truss yeah. and you'd lag into the floor four points uh, and we used to do that all the time every tour came in you would set them up you would lag uh, four bolts in the bottom and then when they took them out they would just put a plug in and then put the goop on top and then you'd be you'd, the floor would be intact again yeah. Uh, but it was also all one piece. It wasn't the dance floor that was taped together or changed, depending on the venue. When it's, when it's uh, a linoleum floor, we still usually use battleship linoleum, yeah. but heavy stuff, 10 feet wide, properly heat sealed. Oh, okay. And that's this is where I will trip up most of the theater designers will hate me for saying this, but it's like I still... Hardwood or battleship linoleum, especially for roadhouse, is the way to go. It is actually getting harder in an ecological way, and sustainable way to get masonite anymore. And we all know this, but kind of don't like to acknowledge that it was never made for stage flooring. So if you have problems with it, um, go back to the manufacturer and they say, you're using a floor? Well, tough beans, because it's not designed for that. And we have a pretty specific spec on how to lay down a masonite floor, how long to let it cure, how to wash it, what kind of paint to put on it. And 60% of the time, 
you got a five-year floor. 40% of the time, same process, spec'd, and hopefully, and usually, because we, we're trying to get on site enough that they've actually done it, tape pulls up the paint in the first show because the quality of the material, because it's not used for anything but door skins and not even packaging much anymore, it's it's not a refined material. And those choices are made, obviously, because of money, right? Yeah, and it goes back to, again, I will say this, it goes back to the owner decision because if you're going to paint all the time, that's why you have a mini-sonite floor. The whole idea being you rip it up in three, five, or ten years and replace it. If you don't have the manpower or the operations to do that, or you're never going to paint it, mm-hmm. uh, why would you do that? It's cheap. <laughs> uh, and it seems like a floor cloth would be a better idea anyways. Yeah, and the, but then from the production side, those are a pain in the ass. Yeah, I get they, it, right? That's true. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, and whether or not floors should even be black. Some We've done some dark brown ones. Uh, I have this discussion with my lighting designer friends because I'm not that far away from it about how often does the floor really need to be black? There's a studio we did in town, which is main purpose is rehearsal hall for the symphony. And then other times it's rented to whoever wants to do it and people do shows there. But so the floor is gray. Because who wants, and I say this to people and they kind of get it when I put the, well, I know we're used to it, but no one really wants to work in a black box with no windows for eight or 10 hours a day. It's really depressing. Yeah. And when you drop something on the floor, it's kind of hard to see on a black floor as well. You want some, you want some different contrast and it even ties into energy efficiency these days. Cause if you have a white floor, you need less light overhead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah basically. Exactly. Isn't that interesting? Uh, are people putting hardware floors, hardwood like floors in anymore, yep. like maple or. Yep. And they'll paint in black if it's a theater or not, if it's a concert hall. And it's obviously more common in a concert hall. Because of acoustics and reflection. Acoustics and f- that wood feel mm. that, that is a very subjective thing, but it is true. Yeah. There's a warmth to it. Yeah. That makes sense. And is it always maple or is it other hardwood? Hardwood, usually maple. Usually maple. Trap doors you asked about. Mm-hmm. Um, big producing house, yeah. Company big enough that Broadway might come through, yeah. But that falls into the, along the lines of the multi, uh, multi-use and multi-form things. If you... If your long-term business plan doesn't have the cash and the expertise to put those traps in and out or to put those seating things up and down, you're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. It's a really hard decision for the owner to make at the beginning because everyone wants that. Yeah. And the variable, we, I think uh, everyone's seen this video through some Facebook group about the flexible house where they see all the seating go up and down and now it's a, a cabaret space and then now it's a formal theater space and now it's a, you yep. know. It's Whatever. only seven times more expensive exactly. than normal seating. Exactly. And all the, you have to store it someplace, and I need like three floors below the main house to put all the seating and everything else, right? The space isn't as bad as you'd think with a spiral lift, Canadian, fancy Canadian invention. Um, somebody was trying to explain to me the spiral lift. I, I've only been in houses with the, with the screw jacks, but um, could, is there a way to do it on audio because it's it's flat, but then it, when it lays when it so coils together, it like snaps yep. together or something. Or so the advantage of a spiral lift, and there's another technology called a stacking chain from America. Advantage of spiral lift is you don't have to dig a hole for your hydraulics to go into or your screw jack to go into, which means you can put it on a flat floor. I think you only need about three four feet of depth. So how to describe it on a podcast? It is two bands of metal. One's a slinky. So it's flat, 
to the earth, parallel to the earth, and the other one's just a band that's wrapped up like a ribbon. Goes around the slinky, and there's a little machine that jams that vertical ribbon in between the plates of the slinky and holds them apart, so it stacks up. That's just ridiculous. And it's a Canadian invention, you're saying? Yeah, it was invented by, uh, I got to meet this guy back when I was a TD mm-hmm. at CATT uh, tour of in Quebec City. And it, he told me this, and I believe him, and literally came to him in a dream at his concrete block company. Because his original company, before they spun this off and knew it was good for theater, built those like car side concrete blocks for weighing down construction sites and holding up sand at the side of the highway yeah. and bollards. Mm-hmm. And he wanted a way to move this stuff around his factory. <laughs> And they're that strong. Wow, that's crazy. The first version needs gravity to work. Yeah. More here's more fun stories for the podcast. This is like when you put when you put a load on it, all of a sudden it snaps together. It's holding it all together. Right. But so you do in a in an orchestra pit have to have structure on the sides to guide it straight up and down, right. so it doesn't because if it pushes it to one side, the slinky will yeah. fall apart. Yeah. They've come up with a version two that doesn't do this. Mm-hmm. But what it meant was. They couldn't compete with uh, cruise ships who all have orchestra pits early on because you get negative gravity on a cruise ship when you go down a wave. Exactly. That's a bad thing. Especially with special rigging on cruise ships for the same reason. They didn't wasn't the whole space suspended so when it moved when the ship when the ship pitches to one side the theater kind of counter pitches to maybe on to... a couple of the really big ones. But okay. Yeah. I always find that bizarre because <laughs> you're like you're dancing in the show and all of a sudden the ship goes sideways. You're dancing uphill now. It's not a yeah. It's a liability issue. Uh, that's crazy. Okay, that, that's an answer for acoustics, though. Again, we're not acousticians, but just like code, we know all the rules of thumb, so we can head people in the right direction. So it's the acoustician isn't fighting against something that doesn't work. The same way we don't want to fight against a square room when they really wanted a fly tower. Um is to put a giant box on rubber pad inside another giant concrete box. And actually, the, I mean, a lot of people will know this, but the Four Seasons Center in Toronto is one of the biggest versions of that because it's over a subway line. Right. So that whole stage and auditorium is a giant concrete box. And it's isolated. Yeah. yeah. It's on giant hockey pucks, essentially, two right. feet wide. That's crazy. <laughs> That's nuts. Uh, grounding, uh, just another random thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, grounding for the theater. So you've got uh, separate audio grounds, Separate lighting grounds. Separate lighting transformer, separate audio ground. Right. Technical ground. What's a technical ground? It's because if you say it's isolated, that's actually illegal. Like oh. it's, 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 it's oh, gets right. into... The to- grounding is not to have it isolated. Yeah, it yeah, gets okay. into how to talk about what you need without freaking out the engineer. Right, yes. That's part of the, my job, right? Because yeah. if you pull the ground, like ground, that's ground lift. Yeah. People get hurt. Yes. You don't want to do that to the whole building ground. So you isolate it as far as you can till it hits the entrance of the building. To the actual ground. So you're not getting loops. Yeah. So it's a controlled, it's all a controlled circuit. Or it's all its own individual circuit, so it's not interfering with lighting until it actually gets to a common element that leaves yeah. the building. And another isolating transformer hmm. that'll only serve audio. Which must be pretty big. Mm, depends on how big your theater is, and everything's taking less energy. Um, three foot square. That makes sense. For like a, you know, four or five hundred seater, it's like the average size theater for us. Yeah. Uh, is all audio being spec these days all digital control? Mm, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And over the last two or three years, because the price has come down, and the it's all about saving copper in the wall, mm-hmm. both just the construction cost of physically doing that many runs of anything, mm-hmm. 
Never mind the cost of the copper itself. Does that mean that you're having snakes at the side of the... So you're not running a 24 or 50 channel snake from the stage to the cockpit or whatever it's called in the, the front of house position. You're actually doing it through networking? Yep. Wow. Or at, least, or at least through Cat5, whether it's not a network or not. Oh, okay. Because with the whole timing issues about audio, yeah. um, there are some pretty robust systems that can do it over a, formerly a network yeah. with privatizing traffic through the IT side of things. But Cat5, which is the next level down a network, mm-hmm. just means, yeah, you can cram 48 channels down one network wire. So we'll run four of those and use one for for the stuff we haven't thought of yet. Uh, and that uh, the problem there is timing, right? So as long as you've got one clock running the whole thing, everything's in sync. Yeah. When a network formally can go through two or three switches, it could pause that because someone's downloading a movie. Not that you would even – we'd still try to keep the network separate from the whole building, but it's another layer of problems. I can only imagine. Uh, what kind of noise issues do you get from that as well? Is there... there no, they're probably a little cleaner because there's a bit of isolation mm. from the grounding issues. Oh, right. You're not that... It's got to do with the way networks work too, and it's a digital signal instead of audio uh, analog signal, so you're not picking up interference along that 100-foot run of copper. And I know there was a pipe dream of using fiber optics when I was uh, when we first started. Has that ever come... Yep. But you need fiber optics when you want to do any of this stuff more than 300 feet, essentially. Oh, okay. Queenie, we did fiber optics to connect the stage to the control booth, essentially. And then uh, that was for lighting control. And then everything spidered out from there. Uh, the network thing is something that's left me in the dust. Like, I have no idea. Uh, I plug in my <laughs> Wi-Fi router at home, and then it works. But I But there's, like, whole... There's a whole level of layer complexity in all this control that I have no idea about. Uh, me too. Okay. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep up. We still try to keep, and again, this is all comes down to the size and the budget, but redundant, if you can have a separate redundant network for all three departments, that'd be great. But now you're talking, like I was thinking just audio, uh, video, lighting control, and there's comm. So now you got eight switches instead of one. And then what about rigging, too, if you're doing machinery? like Yeah, that one you're less likely to do over a network now. Yeah. Like, Cause it's safety. still, yeah, yeah, it's still Cat5. It's still some of the protocols, but it's t- it might it won't go through a switch, and maybe proprietary something. Sometimes you keep those some systems separate it's just for old school jurisdiction. So if the sound guy doesn't want to do lighting stuff, I hate having to do it for that reason, but it still gives you some redundancy, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, are you building many spaces with, um, again, automated rigging, or is it uh, is it all still hand lines? Uh, the cult has some. More and more places worldwide are going that way for a bunch of reasons. It's really expensive in Canada because we're a pretty small market. I'm, it's on the side of my desk project to try and figure out what are the real reasons why it's more expensive in Canada than the States. Mm-hmm. There's some obvious ones about where stuff is made. Some obvious ones that are annoying, the shipping to the middle of nowhere, because some of our theaters compared to Detroit or Chicago are definitely in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it's mostly cost. I think that Doug, I was out uh, visiting Doug Morum. Do you know Doug Morum? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he's the TD at uh, the Confederation Center at PEI. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on the show, but uh, he's got an ETC. Prodigy? Uh, Prodigy, it, like they've got four, six lines. It's all automated. Electrics, at least, are all automated. Yeah, and uh, and I think he's got some scenery lines as well that are all automated as well. Um, it's about. We don't like to quote over the air, but it's about right now twenty five grand a line set. A line set. 
goes down a little bit if you buy a chunk, but that seems like considering steel and the amount of time you waste like loading arbors and things like that, it seems pretty reasonable. But it means so say you put you can afford four. Yeah. Uh York Theater is recent, so it's a good example. So that means you can get six line sets motorized or 27 manual. Good point. And there's there's safety around using them during shows. Yeah. And there's ways to do it safely, And you, but you would want to have a full-time stage carpet that knows automation. Yeah. And um, there's still the issue of the feel of a manually running something. Took us a while to get over it with lighting first, then audio fades. Sometimes you even automate those now. That's going to be next because it should be predictable anyways, and you should be able to stop it. But there's definitely a manual operation, uh, design-wise, aesthetics-wise. Mm-hmm. So ramp up and ramp down to match the music is way easier. The east, that where the question of where do you put the e stop. Like, is there a everywhere. network of, yeah, all, <laughs> that's what I learned at uh, Edge. We all put e-stops everywhere. But, um, like, is it, are there, is it optical? Like, do you have, like, like the garage door opener kind of, like. Combination. There's yeah. an e-stop. If you just said e-stop, I would consider that a big button yeah. that somebody that can see what's going on can push. Then there's load sensors which thank god are getting more and more common even for setups in rock and roll but they'll put those on automated so if it does just something stupid like hangs up on a drape it'll stop um and there's also slack line detectors which are a simpler way of doing load detection i think i remember that now uh it's been a long time since i've done any rigging uh okay that's very cool so we talked about the floor we talked about stage machinery one other thing about hoist, because I think oh yeah, think about safety, like chain. And no, as much as falls. it's uh, artistically manual set is still good. Ergonomically, uh, typical counterweight system is like horrible on your body. And we've all been doing it for years. You mean to operate? To operate, yeah. loading. Yeah, loading is a nightmare. thousand pounds twisting hanging over the edge of yeah. a catwalk. That's what I did when I was when I first started mm-hmm. loading Volkswagens worth of weight onto. Our- yeah. Uh, and in Denmark, you can't put in normal lines that's anymore for health and safety reasons. I think it's Denmark. So they've been transferring the whole country over to automation. Is, uh, is there a way of doing, of automating the weight exchange? Oh, there's, um, yeah. I mean, and some of the big houses will do it with a chain hoist that lifts up oh. the scenery and brings them arbor to an easier place to load or a, a line shaft hoist oh. on the, not line shaft hoist. A capstan hoist mm. on the bottom, so mm. you. But then you're counting on a machinery to hold something out of weight that you're also going to disconnect later. Whereas the built pre-built hoist and chain hoist, it's all kind of some of the safety stuffs built in. That's fascinating. Okay, awesome. Um, and then let's talk. We've talked about sound, some, some audio, and some networking. Let's talk about lighting. So uh, back in the day, we've gone from like let's just go. A quick recap of lighting history. Uh, <laughs> resistance dimming, where it's all in one place and there's one operator running across a thing, to uh, centralized dimming that's electronically controlled, but now you have patch panels and maybe a company disconnect and and or a front of house. Like, again, the, rem- the remnants now in these older houses are stage pin connect panels that you would be able to plug all the front of house lighting into the company dimmers. 
we're getting away, like we've gone to dimmer per circuit and now we're going to LED networked. So mm-hmm. we're just running power and networking to things. What are you specking? Uh, is it a combination of those things? Are you trying to push people towards all LED or all network dimming? What's the certain standard that you're trying to set here? It's That's all rapidly changed over the last five years. And as of now, our first recommendation is all LED, no dimmers. Maybe a handful of uh, backpack dimmers, solo dimmers. If you got a really specific need for an incandescent source, then you can, you know, still control that remotely from your console. But yeah, no, uh, the cost of dimmers and the infrastructure to put it in. And more and more people are using LEDs anyways. And another one you didn't mention, though, is the change from limelight to incandescent. Oh, yeah. Which I think is interesting, this discussion, because a lot of the fight back against LED started out as 100% legit and it's getting less and less obvious. It's like, we can't do the same design that we did with incandescent. And technically, you're probably right, and a really good eye can probably see it. But there's also a whole lot of stuff you can do with LED you can't do with incandescent, like ultraviolet light, strobing, whatever color you want, instant, like real instant changes. Um, so as long as you get, we still have the aesthetic of wanting that nice gentle fade that we see from incandescent and whether it's amber shifted or curved at the bottom, as long as you get quality gear that can do that, uh, there's less and less reasons to use inefficient incandescents. I mean, source fours and um, there's discharge lamps or theory and gets in dozen too and they can be pretty efficient but anything under i'd say 30 40 foot throw now you can do with uh there's two or three lecos now that can do it uh so not just etc i don't know i have not done any my apologies to the listeners i don't know anything about beyond the series two um uh light source from ETC, mm-hmm. like what else is out there? Just recap for us, some people. So well, I know. And- no, this is fine, and I will. But this is an interesting crossover to where we were at talking about what can the staff of the theater do. Mm-hmm. And this is one of those ones where I'm going like, okay, I'll tell you what I know when I've heard, no problem. But if I have a full time electrician or a designer on the company, it's like chances are they're going to know a month before me about the new stuff, yeah. and have an opinion about whether you need seven colors of LEDs or not. Yeah. But there's uh, ETC. It's pretty much still for theater considered standard. Uh, Chauvet have a light called the Ovation. Um, and Elation have another one. And then you're stepping down in actual and sometimes perceived quality just of manufacturer as well as different technology. Sure. The ETC has seven LED colors. The Ovation has five. I think the Elation has the, what they call, chip on board. So instead of an array of individual LEDs, it's got three or four colors on a tiny one little chip. Yeah. It's remarkable that Chauvet is. That's a French Yeah, company, I think, European. Well, they've been in the past, because they're tied in with the American DJ, oh, have been so. known in the historically as a DJ yeah. quality, mm-hmm. and they created a division called Chauvet Pro. Mm-hmm. And they make some good stuff. And they just bought Champsys Controls. Oh, wow. Okay. That's crazy. There's all these names I've not thought about for years. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and, uh, I mean, the moving light stuff, are you specking any in the larger venues any kind of move like movers, like moving heads at all? Or Again, as you said, as things uh, change over the last five years, and to put a kid in, I now actually, even a high school, what will put in two or four movers. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that in high school. Uh, in general, people are using them. I have to remind myself on every new inventory I do that, 
an IQ is actually still a really cool thing, yeah. like bang for buck. Yeah. Um, but most, unless you're hundred percent producing house, you're going to do a rock show mm-hmm. and they're going to want some movers. Mm-hmm. Using movers as a designer is happened after when I was a lighting designer. So I got to admit, I'd see them in rings of all the uh, really great uh, designers in town. So I know, okay, they're a part of a theater kit now too. So I should include them. Uh, for high schools, there's been lots of issues over uh, safety of working at heights, especially in BC and I think Ontario, Alberta is starting to pick up on this. There were some jurisdictional challenges between union and school boards about climbing ladders. So we're doing more and more tension wire grids to have pluses and minuses, uh, but are generally more safer than a catwalk. And this is, you're walking on a tension... You're walking on a tennis racket. Yeah. 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 So you still got to protect the edges. You can put a wheelchair on there if you put plywood down, but there's some minor accessibility issues. You can't really have a giant crowd on it, so there's some issues with taking care of that. And for a while, we were doing tension wire grids with lighting above it, because that's the whole idea. So you shine the lights through, and it's negligible, the change. We used to think when they first came out, people would notice little spots above their heads. Never been to complain about that after they've been in use. No, and you can mask. Yeah. You can mask properly. It's yeah. fine. Well, again, we try not to mask underneath over the audience, because, again, now you're having to climb a ladder. Oh, yeah. So what I was getting to, and so for a while we were doing still traditional dead hung, not not flown, but traditional patterns on stage. So you still have to go up the ladder there. So now we're moving all that above. Um, so that gets your high school students and your entry level technicians to be able to learn how to focus without being on a ladder at real distances and all that and focus for a show. But then there's high schools that can't even afford that. I lately have been had this idea that I'm putting out there convincing them to go more to a roadhouse I know that you guys they're doing design work they're as high school students and they're trying to do fancy stuff for the shows mm-hmm. kudos for them for doing it but for the combination of balance of learning outcome never mind not budget versus time mm-hmm. put in a house plot with a handful of specials don't spend your time teaching kids how to focus lights because mm-hmm. you know what at co- once you're out of high school and you're working at uh, Christie Lights <coughs> or uh, wherever the other rental companies are you can actually learn how to focus a light pretty quick. Mm-hmm. The creative stuff's happening at the console. So put up a house plot. Now that we have color, LLEDs are color changers. Mm-hmm. That's really another advantage. Throw a couple of movers in because half of these students, if they stay in tech, are not going to be in theater. They're going to be in events. Yeah. They're going to learn so much more sitting at the console from a design perspective that I think you get more, again, bang for your time educationally that way. So that's why... Long story, why well, I try to afford to put movers into schools. And the schools are small studios, 15, 25-foot throw. So, there, again, there's lots of even LED sources now that can totally pull that off. That's true. Yeah, you don't need a giant you know, VL something yeah. or a, one of the big clay-packy <laughs> nightmares, which are beautiful, but you're throwing 15 feet. <laughs> yeah. You're not in a rock venue where you're throwing 60 feet down and then you have to light the stage. Our bigger challenge is to find wide enough lensing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um, wow, that's great. Is there a good uh, LED Fresnel yet? Uh, Elation makes something called a fuse. Okay. And ETC make a lens for their body of their all their LED engines. Oh, okay. That you can barn door. Oh, okay. So it's, it's like another bugaboo of mine. Kind of yeah, is some telling people all those other things are great. They're but they're wash lights. They're like park and replacements. Mm. 
there's only a few things I can do, whatever an L is. I, and me being the one sticking back with do it the way we used to, I still think barn dooring your wash lights, your Fresnels, is very, very useful. Um, we were talking about this last week. The difference being as things change, I have to admit, those Fresnels cost almost as much as a Leco. So that kind of negates the argument. You used to use a Fresnel because it was half the cost of a Leco. So that's why you had them in your inventory. But now if they're the same cost... Like 10 years ago, if you didn't have any Fresnels, but you had the same number of 50-degree uh, source wars, you would be happy, yeah. I bet. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, true. I mean, I, I there's certain things you can do with a Fresnel that you can't do. The zoom quality and the yep. intensity and the edge and the fall-off. But you can, I can do a wash. The Leco's just fine. Like You're right about the zoom, and zoom lenses for LED Leco's are the same pluses and minuses as they always did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do the fall off with frost, but the intensity now that the engines are the same. Yeah. I think that you still need a stock of one K pars though. Okay. Just personally, like having a bank of one K pars and some beam projectors, and some beam projectors. How about Svoboda lights? Do you ever spec Svoboda lights anymore? <laughs> no. But another thing we always spec off the top is a projector. We used to just put in the conduit and plugs. Uh, yeah, and that's technology. We've talked about projecting a number of times in the show, but um, everyone's using it. Yeah. Um, great. Uh, and so distributed network, like, uh, do people need to know? I mean, I would think that when you're coming into theater school now, you have to be an IT. You have to have an IT, something in your back pocket, right, to be able to troubleshoot these networks, right? You need to have some, yeah, 101 for sure. Mm-hmm. Again, if we keep it separate network for lighting, separate network for audio, Ah, uh, I don't actually know this, but I imagine most kids in high school know about IP addresses and all that sort of stuff already. Uh, it becomes, again, to the level of theater you are. Like, not every regional theater 20 years ago had a host tech that knew how to program the electronics in the rack. They might have to call in a commissioning technician. So that's possible. You know what, though? Uh- like places like YPT still have strand CPD dimmers yeah. that need to be trimmed every year, and nobody knows how to trim them anymore. So you still have to have a tech in to trim those. So it's the same. Yeah, that's problem. my example. Yeah, and lighting control is actually well, most forgiving. Audio with timing, uh, you might have to be more aggressive with managing the network. Lighting most of the time, you can buy a switch, plug it in, and you're fine, just like you would with your computers, like you were saying at home. And video is more about uh, capacity. The timing is there too, but it's just so much data. Right. Yeah. And learning about uh, actual data in an image versus the size and like 4K, 2K, and all that, and what's actually going down the pipe and compression versus visual like artifacts. That's another huge thing to learn about <laughs> is any, yeah exactly is anything being synced still like i imagine like with simpty or with midi or something with video and audio i guess if it's live there's not an issue with sync you're just syncing video to whatever's live is happening but yep. um are people trying to automate once spaces? you're getting cameras involved and i gotta admit we don't do a lot of that then you still need sync and then you'll run another coax to every camera location sync back to your broadway Mix or your broadcast mixer or broadcast, yeah. Awesome. All right. So, 
that was a great discussion. Is there anything that we missed that we didn't talk about that you that you as part of your job as a a design consultant or a theater consultant that we haven't talked oh, about? I'm sure there's a bunch. Because it's interesting trying to chat, and it's it's good that it's a chat about how does the process work. Because we talked mostly about how the teams assembled, and that is different all the time. Um, the big thing, and the, well, not a big thing, but one of the things about process is interesting. I talked about iteration, and it's part of the const- architectural uh, way of doing things. And in the construction way of doing things where we'll do an estimate early on, that's got huge contingencies and it gets smaller and smaller as we go, which also means we learn to admit, uh, uh, acknowledge that schematic design would be a step along the way. Where we've talked about almost everything in the building but at a high level, mm-hmm. kind of like preliminary design maybe in theater context. And then you, depending on how fast the project is, you have two or three more steps, 60, 70, 80%, and refining as you go. That's the kind of interesting part of the process where but if you don't get the big numbers in in the beginning, it's really hard to add them in at the end. Yeah. So square, whether it's square footage or dollars. Mm-hmm. And the, at the beginning, they're pretty much equivalent. It's, it's uh, When I was a TD and PM, most of my work was regional the- size theater. So it was pretty much six-month projects. Like, it's pretty sh- actually pretty short. So if you got into the nitty-gritty about how much every screw cost in the beginning you didn't feel like you're wasting your time with us it's like it's sometimes <laughs> hard to not do that we've got to pull back and so no the fact that we're pricing the whole building at 700 dollars a square foot even though we know storage spaces don't cost that but the seating is going to cost more it's like we it's all built into the process your first budget on a big construction project is like plus or minus 50 percent or more Wow. Okay. That's a good, that's a good tip for the, uh, for the client to go, don't freak out. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of unknowns until you get further down the process. Right. And it's still considered a contingency because what happens is, so, so you get further down the process and that's why it's schematic design. It might be 25% because you've done more detail and then you will, especially on a million dollar project, send it out to yet another consultant, yeah. a quantity surveyor or a cost consultant. Okay. Now, wait a second. Is that like the what the, what do they do? <laughs> they are a construction field, and they're they got certifications, uh, like accountants have certifications that they all follow a similar process, which is how to turn a set of drawings by square footage, and wall sizes and finishes into a uh, trusted cost estimate, and actually like cost a cost estimate is like a specific term. We will always say we will give you a budget. <laughs> because <laughs> if you say you give someone a cost estimate you're it's like a formal thing and they can say actually uh instead of being out by 25 percent, you're out by a bunch and then, but, you're, and then you're liable for that yeah, yeah yeah so a qs will know construction across from us to hospitals to office buildings so that when they look at double thick double thick drywall wall and there's this many walls okay we know how much that costs uh and in the process for and this is a less my expertise, but for the owner side on the financial, they will break it down both by square feet and this much for this kind of work and this much for that kind of work and help schedule it out. Right. Uh, um, one of the things we did not talk about was any kind of acoustic design. Uh, and I know you're not an acoustician, but um, the uh, uh, a theater that shall remain nameless, but everyone in Toronto will know what I'm talking about, <laughs> um, was just broken up into two different spaces. Mm-hmm. It used to be a cross house, and they went, nah, it's too big. We don't need another 2,000-seat theater. Is that the north side of Toronto? 
He's in the north side okay. of Toronto. And uh, one of the problems is that they didn't do enough acoustic isolation. So they turned a studio space, which is largely a live performance venue. Um, and I'm just getting a FaceTime from Ron Jenkins. This is a totally, <laughs> he's never called me ever in my life. And now I'm getting FaceTimed. I'm going to decline it and call him back. But that'd be cool to have a chat with him while we're talking. But I'm going to, sorry, distracted number 2017. Anyways, in this venue, two venues. One is a concert venue. Well, they'll have like the like an amplified the, music conference. like an amplified music conference con- conference uh, concert, and then next door do a live theater show. And they didn't build the acoustic wall to the ceiling. Mm-hmm. There was a gap. So then they had to some find some way to like curtains, baffles, uh, and it didn't work. Like you can if you get a large like rocking thing next door. And here's Ron Jenkins saying, "Why did you?" Anyways, um, uh, it's driven me crazy how that, I mean, I understand that you're down a project, you're down the rabbit hole with the project, and no one thinks about when you're going to have two giant different things happening beside each other. But well, luckily, acoustics, acousticians or acoustic engineers, they're actually more common than theater consultants are. So even though you want to get one that knows theater... Architects are used to hiring them because you know what? You don't want the air conditioning disrupting your office either. The uh, the specs are lower. The amount of noise you'll let into an office is more than in a theater. But all those are rules of thumb. Big heavy walls stop low noise. Any opening, I don't care if it's from a finishing nail, is going to let high energy, high frequency noise through. Rumbles and building more noise. They know all that stuff about isolation, which is cool. They know about how to isolate individual pieces of equipment from the building. Uh, it's interesting that you brought that up first because we usually have to remind people when they say, we want good acoustics. We, okay, so, you know, I think you're talking about acoustics inside the room. Very important. Mm-hmm. But it's a small part of what the acoustic <laughs> engineer does. Yeah. Keeping your noise away from other people and other people's noise away from you yeah. is another big part of it. And they do that in any building. It's got to be the biggest bugaboo I have about any theater space that's designed. Whether you're in the Tarragon and you've got someone yelling out the... St- the the uh, the loading doors on the street or a car that drives by that you can mm-hmm. hear inside the space at the and it's always at the quietest moment most touching high drama and you go like murr, murr, outside the thing or whether it's this debacle in Toronto uh, or it's air handling noise you're trying to record the symphony orchestra mm-hmm. for example at Roy Thompson Hall and you have all this air handling noise that now you can't do so you have to go to the center of the square to record the Toronto Symphony because it's got a better noisy no, like a noiseless room. This is why there's a whole separate uh, field to do that, mm-hmm. since we're a small company. And if someone was to work with us just to do theaters or acoustics, they, they would make money, so they have to do the whole thing. Um, and because it's that much work, they know all that stuff. And just like us, and this is another challenge, is they're on site making sure what they said should happen is going to happen. That makes so no one skims or orders the wrong material, or you told me it was going to be this foam, but it's not that foam anymore. Or yeah. Whatever. And then how does... How Here's do a, I, another a fun story on acoustics, because you'll like this, especially for that example. So they it was built this way in the first place, the Queenie and the Playhouse. Mm-hmm. As people in Vancouver will know, uh, Queenie is the opera house, big concert hall, 2,500 seats, I think. And the Playhouse is, was where the Playhouse Theatre Company was. Sits sideways be, behind it. 700 and something seats for a straight up place. Uh, when they built it, the fly towers 
essentially touch. I think there's a bit of an air gap. But they also didn't do any work around uh, isolating conduits and airflow and everything that went through. So it was like rigid connection between the two. So just before I started the DWE phase six of that big reno, is they literally cut the building in half. They took separated all the ducts and put rubber connections between them, all the conduit, and physically cut <laughs> the building in half where it was physically touching. Mm-hmm. If you go down to the men's washroom side, the stairs from the up to the lobby, you can see a four-inch wide expansion joint uh-huh. full of putty mm-hmm. where they cut the building in half right. <laughs> to, to solve that problem. Solve it, went, it went cheap. I can only imagine. It also makes me appreciate, again, uh, in Toronto we've got the Elgin Winter Garden, which is a piggyback, yeah. like a stacked theater. What's it called? I would, I would live with either one of those terms. It's like, uh, there's, a, there's a different name I'm, I'm blanking on. But you've got upstairs, like two full, two, I mean, one's a medium, one's a full-sized kind of proscenium houses with fly towers. One's a hemp house, one's a full yep. fly house. Uh, they are acoustically isolated. Like, I've never had problems. And there's been a musical downstairs, and there's been a thing upstairs. And this was built in 1910 or something, or 1922. And, uh, and we're still... Like, they figured it out. They knew how to isolate them acoustically then and build, you know, through empiric knowledge, these beautiful places. But. Theater consulting theater consulting became a field in the 60s. Uh, Richard Pilbrow, amongst others, who started it by essentially seeing what you saw and then looking at everything that's built in the 40s and 50s and going, why the hell are we doing this? Exactly. And stuck up for theater and said, we need to start advising building designers that they can't be doing this crap anymore. (laughs) Oh, it also reminds me, uh, again, this will be one of the last questions I ask, but um, because of the current um, expectation uh, of amplification in most uh, larger houses, like Mm -hmm. you're not going to do a musical with a pit band without being amplified. In fact, a lot of the times they're amplifying um, there, there's area mics on stage to amplify spoken word theater uh, in the larger houses because it wasn't, well, for whatever reason, we're just here differently now. We're, we just set yep. a different expectation from the audience. Um, are people building venues to be amplified now, or are they still building venues where you can sit on downstage right and everyone in a 2000 seat space can hear you if you know how to project? Like, are those choices different now than they were before? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't the say they're different. We still expect to be able to do spoken voice yeah. and hear it everywhere. And that's part of the, the way I said, the, the interior acoustics of the room and having uh, the right balance of the right kind of reflections. Um, and most of the ones where we have a acoustician on board of the like two or three firms that are really good at it, uh, still not a problem. But uh, the flip side is we also design to, in that same space, put in a really loud rig which means, because there are two different uses. The classic in the Queen E is like this, and it, um, Aeroacoustics were the, the acoustic people in there, and they won some awards, wrote some articles about it. Rock venue that's also opera house, because opera still won't mic, and it's a bigger house. How do you make both those people happy? Because the rock house wants no reflections, because everything's so loud, and the opera wants very balanced uh, reflections. Not to mention a, pit, a band in the pit that has to be heard, like yeah. an orchestra, like a hundred piece orchestra for Wagner or whatever that has to be heard in the entire house from the pit, yeah. which is not necessarily an acoustically 
I mean, it is an acoustically designed space, but it's a hole in the floor. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the stage. I mean, it's, I mean, this might be obvious. Some people think about it because we do this all the time, but the relatively inexpensive way to try and cover that basis without doing high, high end measurement or prediction measurements ahead of time, mm-hmm. like for studios and stuff, is you wrap curtains around the walls right. so that the owners can then go and experiment mm-hmm. after. But you kind of want to do both because this shape of the walls has got a bit to do with it and frequencies are different. In our role, plug a bit more about what we do because people say, oh, you're not an acoustician. It's like, yeah, but what the acoustician will do is work out reverb time where you might want reflective, diffusive, or absorptive stuff. Maybe give some examples and hand that over to the architect, again, for the interior design people to try to work it in. Because placement can be precise, but a lot of it is generally on that wall, 75% of it has to be soft. So if we're on board, then that information can come to us and we can say, great, we know how to do it with curtains. We know how to do it with some acoustic panels and we can spec that and help with that too. And if it's at the rule of thumb level, then, and there is no acoustician, then we'll try and figure it out on our own. Um, Artec Solution. I, I keep talking about Artec because the only company I know. There are houses that I've worked in that I yeah. know are Artec consultants. They do this banner curtain thing where they can, uh, and the center is a, is a, is a, is a, a good example of this in Kitchener, Ontario, where for uh, theater production, the banners, which are all automated, will go to the floor and cover all the all the walls up. And then when they get the orchestra in there, all the banners go to the ceiling, so it's more of a reverb room. They've got, like, even behind the boxes on in the mezzanine or the loges on the side, they've got curtains that draw, yeah. uh, that open and close. And, uh, and so the space kind of configures differently. But so the Chan Center is, like, mm-hmm. one of my... Favorite, very, very expensive buildings that I've got to tour just because it was uh, the Smith Center. They also have the doors and the third balcony are all animated so they can open them up. It's essentially, so if they're closed, they're reflective. If they open them up, it goes into a soft vestibule that absorbs some sound. Uh, actually, the Jack Singer has some a version of that too on the sides. It's just doors that open the open these huge volumes of space to add reverb, actually. It go, kind of goes in there and gets longer. Oh, like a... Like a... Like a, like the way they used to do reverb, like a yeah, exactly, like a chamber, like a chamber reverb chamber. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, I think we've gotten down that rabbit hole a little too far. Um, this has been terrific. Now, is there a so considering that the some of the audience that uh, that we work with here on the title block is that they are in their undergrad, they're two three years into learning about theater in general. Um, from my experience in uh, and knowledge of theater consultancy, a lot of the career paths are very varied, are yeah. very varied, are varied to this kind of consultant position. Um, does anybody ever want to like come out of theater school and become a theater consultant, or is this is this is something that happens after mm, you've had some experience? Not right? until they've done it, and that's only because we just hired a. For first, well, we had some full-time drafting assistants a while ago, and then things got slow, and they went and found other work. I just hired the first one, and he came right out of York University, and he didn't think so until he started working here, and now he's saying, can I hang around? Can I hang around? <laughs> the trick is, and from my perspective and the way we run our business, is you still need that like on the stage, behind the console experience a bit, because that's the whole point of us being here is to bring that knowledge in. I've now been doing it long enough, I have to reach out to people. Like Alan Brody's given me advice on house plots, and John Weber's done house plots for me, and I got other audio guys, and I'm going like, I think this is what you guys are doing with wireless mic setups now. Am I on the right? Um, so 
you can't come in with none of that knowledge. It's kind of like you also got to know what you don't know and know who to ask to fill in the holes. So to be a theater consultant right out of school would be tough. But to become a project assistant at one of the medium-sized firms, those jobs come up every once in a while. And there's why you need uh, technical paperwork and drafting skills. Sorry, but I had to explain to Riley. He, We debated about what his title would be, and he said, can I be a junior consultant? And I just said, like, no, man. It took me 20 years to be called a consultant. You're going to have to <laughs> wait a right. while. <laughs> just got to pay your dues. That hasn't changed in the business. Uh, well, that's great. Uh, anything else that we haven't talked about that you think we should talk about? Um. Yeah, the last thing about the process, just so that we covered some of the final steps about what we do, mm-hmm. because we and just because of, I mean, it's not it's not the design work, so it's kind of doesn't totally fit into the channel. But we had all that process and all the budget checks and that, where you go and get to final documents and you hire someone to build a building. Um, another big part of what we do, I've kind of alluded to it, but is to go on site and say both what you did is what we specified and as any any project changes oh some for other reasons we had to move that wall great so the stuff that was on that wall don't move it with the wall because now it's in the wrong place and all those things on site and that's one of the other challenges on being the extra officially not required consultant is explain people you we think you should pay us to come out once a month or whatever it is as opposed to twice especially when you're working in grand prairie and the yukon and kamloops and uh, and that reminds me, like, if you're a TD who's overseeing a new, the build of a new space or the renovation, um, what should your expectations be of your theater consultant? And, and how can you both make their job easier, uh, but what do you have to do to make sure they have the information they need um, to serve you properly? In the early design work, all those steps, whether the project's decided it'll be three or seven, with the whole architect team, we'll send you the design as much as it's finished and want you to review it. And number one is, yeah, have a look. Because the further along you go, the harder it is to make changes, and even small changes get more and more expensive. Because once you're in construction, and this is where some of the... It can cost some money. There's sometimes that's when the staff... Sometimes that's when they're hired. They weren't allowed to be in the design. Um they'll come in and they'll start talking directly to the construction guys. And that first off just takes up the more time. And it's a drag for those TDs. They don't have the authority to change on the site because it has to go through the official owner. Because if you ask an electrician to move a bunch of conduit, he's going to say, yeah, the owner's representative said I should do it. And I did it. And that was $10,000 of the work. Yeah, or it doesn't meet code now, or it doesn't solve the problem. We we're trying to solve the problem. In or the creates original. another problem. Yeah. I mean, it's it can be annoying because the, the speed is way different. Yeah. On a good project, some of that stuff can get turned over in a week, mm-hmm. or two weeks. On really bureaucratic projects with many layers of owner mm-hmm. up into government, it might take months. And you know, it's hard to trust. And, it's, and you know what? It's also not always going to happen, whether it's for money or it was too late or whatever. Uh, it also, like, we also, I mean, every project goes long. One of the things we're expected to do in theater is Wednesday's opening night. There's an audience coming. They're going to see what's on stage. Yeah. So you better make sure it's it's like, we can't push it to Thursday when we run out of paint time or someone gets sick. Um, so you better have a contingency to make that happen. Um, in these larger scale projects, like, 
it's a, it's a soft opening. I mean, I mean, unless they've they've got a season that they're planning to open in September. Like, I guess that's the only time when you get a bit more pressure. It's always they're always going to slide a little bit. Mm. Uh, I hate having to admit it, but it's going to happen. So that comes down to the project management early on with your architect, and whether you're doing project management or again, you can hire someone just to look after the schedule. Try to leave enough time in there, and we uh, we always tell our clients too. It's like yeah, and for so plan to have the building finished three months before you want to be in it, and I mean walking in it, not having a show, to allow some time to get in to see. And then once you're in, we try to tell our clients, and it's hard because you one need to start making money. Don't have a show for three months. <laughs> like you got to figure out how all the doors work. Got to figure out where the thermostats are. You want, if it's a new building and a new TD, you want the gear guys to figure out how all this equipment works. And um, it's not all going to work. There's going to be some glitches, and you want to figure those out before you have a proper show. So maybe you do a hard hat show or a soft cabaret thing to introduce people. Um, But it's hard to do that. We've done, and we've, we've had buildings open under Firewatch because the construction got so far, all that contingency was built in, but the show was sold. Then you get into the fights, and that's on the contract side, which we definitely won't go down the rabbit hole of, of like, depending how the contract is written up, there's a good chance, and now your contractor is losing money hand over fist because he didn't meet the schedule. He's paying for a fireman to be at your show. Boy, does he want to be out of there in a hurry. So making sure things are done right becomes even more and more important. Yeah, that's a whole other part of the problem. Like, I don't know what the first thing about construction, so... Um, Interesting. Uh, safety designing. So I have there's uh, there's two different things we can talk about. We can talk about safety designing, safety into the system, and then environmentally friendly design. We talked about this lead project, but even in, within theater, there might be a push to uh, to save money or to um, uh, to be more environmentally friendly, using less energy or designing a space differently, like within the theater space, designing it differently, reusable materials or uh, like seat covering that's not all synthetic or like all then, that, all that material stuff is usually would be driven by the owner and architect okay. if they want to do that, and they might. Mm-hmm. Shapes of rooms hasn't been much, but introducing stuff like less energy, really, and actually, this we're still working on just to chat the specific about lighting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we now we're not dimmer per circuit. So how many circuits do we actually put in? Mm-hmm. Especially if it's a rental. I've got a few current jobs are going like you know we could just abandon some of those and not buy the relays for them mm-hmm. save the resources that are going in to build that stuff and all that but you're used to the flexibility so you want to and you can afford it so i i say yes uh windows and spaces to save energy on lighting and just be more ergonomically again the black box thing that's becoming more and more common with controls over them which is a tricky one to get right but we do more and more as venues and versals with windows that's uh that's certainly I remember the day we we unsealed the windows at Blythe because <laughs> yeah. there's windows. In the I talk about house. that all the time. Yeah. yeah, and you're like, "What's the like? What happened in here?" I'm like, "I can see things. It look like you feel better working in the space yeah. during the day with the windows open in the front of house." And uh, it seems like that used to be a thing at the turn of the century. They were built with windows because of electricity. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, and then they bricked them up, or they boarded them up, or they plastered them over, and. Um, uh, like it goes a long way. Like, would you build? Would you ever build a building with a skylight, or a clerestory, or yep. a, like a lantern in the middle of it to let window yep. light in during the day? Right. Yep. 
I mean, I mean, the class, there's two classic examples when most people know because I think the Today Show or one of those crazy shows is the Jazz Center in New York City. The whole back wall is a window onto Central Park. Mm-hmm. And there's a concert hall in Banfield in BC, same thing. Now, it's a concert hall, so there's different, it's less of an issue, but the whole back wall is open out to the ocean. It's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. That must be a heating, that's a whole HVAC thing because now you have to get double glazed. HVAC windows, and envelope. And, and, yeah. Sound. Sound. Oof. My God. Okay. Well, I think we have to end it there. I could talk right. about another another hour with you about oh, this yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, sure. Anytime. Um, but uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, if anyone needs to get a hold of you, then go to the, 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 I'm sure you have a website. Yep. DB, which we'll include in the show notes. Okay. Um, and uh, this is not like, I, I haven't done this to sort of promote DWD Theater Design and Consulting, but... I think what you're doing here is fantastic, oh, and it sounds like you've got your client as a, as your main focus, and and uh, yeah. congratulations on all that work. Yeah, no That's problem. Awesome. I mean, I know this isn't a late night TV show, but yeah, thanks for the plug. Mm-hmm. And the little bit of plug for me is uh, we never charge people when they call us on the phone and ask for an advice, and if it's something little and we can give them the answer on the phone, no problem. Like, yeah. we don't want people to be afraid to, to try and contact us because the the first five minutes is going to sink their budget. The meter is on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's in the, and that goes to the whole community nature. Certainly, that that the title block is trying to promote, but also community, the general community nature of theater. And yeah, because we are, we are on the commercial side. We're a private business now. I yeah. apologize, but we try to do our best to help out all of us wherever we can. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yep. That was technical director and theater consultant Scott Miller speaking with me in his office in Vancouver, B.C. in December of 2018. Next time, costume designer Mara Gottler. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like the show, please support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you load Volkswagens, yes, Volkswagens worth of steel bricks onto arbors in your double-purchase house and wonder if there has to be a better way. I'm Michael Cruz, and I will see you next time on The Title Block.